Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the source code for an historic botnet has been released, the tale of a DNS packet, and the four easy ways to hack an ATM. Plus, your hard questions are answers and a rockin' roundup. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 287 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on October 6, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this show goes on. But the downloads for this show, the downloads... They were made possible by Scale Engine. Go over to scaleengine.com and check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is the man that built that Scale Engine network, our host, the admin, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Hello, sir. It is so good to talk to you. And uh, you and I were, uh, you and I were uh, gazing at your uh, Lenovo laptop before the show started. Uh, do you have that handy right now? Kind of. Nice, Alan. Nice. You got, you got, I like the stickers on there. And I wanted to mention before we go into the show, I think we have been negligent because you and I, like when we start this show, we just go like heads down and we just do this thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, nice. It's a previously dog food one. I like the dog food one with like the tail coming off. The, yeah. Com- the, a tail coming off the dog food bowl. <laughs> that is slick. I like that text. I like the one clear too. one though. Yeah. Yeah, I like the die-cut ones. Those are the ones yes, that get me. those are pretty good. Yeah. Now, we have over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Snickers. We have, Snickers? No. Although that does sound delicious. Jupiter Broadcasting yeah. Snickers? <laughs> we do have stickers. So they look like this. Yeah, you got the die-cut PSD now. Oh, you have yes. a whole pack, don't you? Yes. Oh, look at that. That looks good. You should get that ready to hand that out to conferences. You can get the die-cut BSD That's now sticker. Pack of the <laughs> and we did a die cut for the TechSnap sticker. Four dollars mm-hmm. to get a TechSnap sticker and promote the show. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash stickers. But really, go get yourself a piece of podcasting history right there. And that's a good sticker. The die cut ones, they're vinyl. You can you can actually yep. peel them off later on and you don't get like this weird, crazy, sticky resid- residue. And one of the things that I've done. Yep. Oh, I don't I don't have my laptop in here. But I put a uh, I put a vinyl backing on my entire laptop and then I put all my stickers on that. So I have like this vinyl uh, plaid, <laughs> it's a red plaid background that I can yeah. peel off and then I have all of my stickers. So if you're, if you're down with the stickers like we are, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash stickers to grab a TechSnap sticker. Mm-hmm. But Alan, we have a big show. That's not what we, I just, I just mentioned that to give us a little buffer, to prepare us yes. mentally for the big show that we have today. And uh, our first one this week comes from Mr. Krebs on Security, which... Yep. I love because last week, one of the number one emails we got was people following up on one of the Krebs on security stories we covered last week. I'll tell you more about that during the feedback, but why don't we start with this new one, the uh, source code for the Internet of Things botnet. And I think, is it, how do you pronounce that? Miri? Miraya? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. It's been, e- either way, we've gotten the source code and it's, it's fascinating. Murray, Mariah? Like yeah, yeah. Murray? I don't know. Murray might be uh, it. <clears throat> so, yes, the source code that powers the uh, one of the Internet of Things botnets, uh, likely the one responsible for launching the historically large distributed denial of service attack against Krebs on security last month, has been made public, uh, virtually guaranteeing that the Internet will soon be flooded with attacks from many new botnets powered by insecure routers, IP cameras, digital video recorders, and all other easily hackable devices. Oh, well, what could go wrong, Alan? Sounds delicious. 
Uh, the leak of the source code was announced Friday on the English language hacking community hack forums. Uh, the malware, dubbed Murray or whatever, however Maria? you pronounce that. I don't even know. M-I-R-A-I. Uh, spreads to vulnerable devices by continuously scanning the internet for IoT devices uh, protected by factory default usernames and passwords or hard-coded usernames and passwords. Now, uh, so this is ones like are even worse because that's one where you don't even necessarily know it, right? You change the default admin password, but there's a built-in support password or whatever from the manufacturer okay. that everybody yeah, has. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. It's either it would either be not changing the defaults or it would be like a remote a access hidden built-in or... one that you can't even change or something like that. That's the worst. Yeah. Uh, vulnerable devices are then uh, seeded with malicious software that turns them into bots forcing them to uh, report to a central uh, control server, and then they're used to, you know, as a staging ground and launch denial of service attacks and knock websites offline or send spam or whatever they want to do. You know. Uh, an interesting quote from the person who released the code. Uh, they said, when I first got into the denial of service industry, uh, I wasn't planning on staying for long. I made my money. Uh, now there's lots of eyes looking at IoT. Uh, it's time to get the fuck out. It feels like, and in some ways... IoT still feels like a new category. Like this is a brand new, uh, totally nascent category with all kinds of issues. But from this guy's perspective, all of the fun's been had. Well, uh, from this guy's perspective, get out well, the you know before everybody comes looking for you. Basically, but that's like the early adopters, early adopter in the form of yeah. a hacker. Yeah, uh, this is. Uh, I have an amazing release for you uh, with Murray. I usually pull about 380,000 bots uh, just by scanning Telnet. Why any of these devices have Telnet open, I don't know. Does it make you uh, want to just smack your forehead? Yeah. It's like Telnet should have died 15 years ago. And they're being so lazy when they're using Telnet. Yep. Uh, however, after the uh, Krebs, which oh, he spelled Krebs wrong. You just put Kreb without the S. Anyway, after the denial of service against Krebs, ISPs have been slowly shutting down and cleaning up their act. Uh, today, he says he pulls a maximum of about 300,000 bots versus the 380,000 before. So basically, he's like, people are catching on to this now, so I'm going to drop <laughs> the source code here for everyone uh, and go and hide, basically. Uh, in particular, it seems part of this is that by making the code public, if he gets busted and is found to have the code, he's like, well, I just downloaded it. It's available to everybody. I'm not necessarily the guy that wrote right. it. So they might not just be, hey, here's something for all of us to learn from. It might be a little bit of, I just downloaded that thing that everybody else is downloading. Yeah. It basically, it's like, I'm done with this. It's covered. Uh, let's, yeah. Let's uh, make it hard for them to figure out who did this by just making everybody have it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is uh, there's been a... there. Oh. Isn't that isn't that sort of the problem too with open source tools that are designed for security auditing like like SQL Map? Uh, so here in the U.S., there is this huge, huge Department of Homeland Security initiative around hacking of a couple of local U.S. election websites. I'm not talking about like the voting for the president. I'm just talking local voter registration. And in, in these cases, the quote unquote hacker used open source website vulnerability scanning tools and open source SQL dumping tools to just hack these websites. These are free utilities that are open and available online, and a lot of people use them, and probably the majority of people use them, to audit their own networks. And so here you have a scenario where the code is available to anyone online, 
You don't have to be a pro to find it. It feels like this is sort of becoming the big deferral process. Like I, if you release the code, if you put it out there, you don't necessarily find – because it's not your own personal tool, you're not necessarily responsible for the possibilities that it can accomplish, the damage it can create, the way it can be used. Right, but you know, uh, anything that we make can end up being used as a weapon. Yeah, what's right. the what's the BSD uh what's the free BSD sort of line about uh didn't you tell okay, me so we, uh Unix doesn't stop you from uh shooting yourself in the foot because that would also stop you from doing something clever. Yeah, exactly. It's and that's the same that applies to so many different tools in our life. Yeah, but it's you know, like we have this idea of common off the shelf parts for whatever, but you know, you can modify a camera flash into a stun gun, making it a weapon. Doesn't mean we shouldn't Sell camera flashes, right? By the way, Chatroom tells us that uh, Maria is the Japanese word for the future. Ah. Yes. Uh, the forum moderator's nickname is Ana-senpai because reasons. There is a lot of anime on this forum. I, I happen it's... to have, by the way, my background today is from a Japanese house. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. uh, sources tell Krebs on security that uh, Murray or whatever it is, is uh, one of at least two uh, malware families that are currently being used to quickly assemble very large Internet of Things-based uh, DDoS armies. The other uh, dominant strain is the IoT malware dubbed BashLite, which I'm wondering if this has something to do with Bash. It sounds like it. Uh, functions similarly uh, and is also infecting systems via default usernames and passwords on Internet of Terror devices. Oh, listen to that buzzword, Internet of Terror devices. Yes. No Internet acronym change terrible. needed. Yeah, Internet of Terrible would also be good. <laughs> yeah. Internet of Terrible, Internet of Terror, no acronym change required. Yep. Uh, according to research from security firm Level 3 Communications, the Bashlight botnet currently is responsible for enslaving nearly a million IoT devices and is in direct competition uh, with the botnets based on uh, this Japanese malware. Uh, infected systems can be cleaned simply by rebooting them thus wiping out the malicious code from memory. They don't actually persist. Uh, but experts say that that's not much uh, help because the constant scanning goes uh, going on for vulnerable systems means that a rebooted IoT device will be reinfected within minutes of the reboot. Uh, the only way to solve the problem is to change the default password and protect them yeah. from uh, rapidly being reinfected In on other words, reboot. if they have the same core vulnerabilities they had when they originally got infected, you reboot them, you might clear the login session or the process... But if they yeah, have the they, same core vulnerability, they're just going to get reinfected again. It it reminds me actually of what was it, the Code Red virus from like ninety or two thousand three ish. It was big infected uh, internet uh, Microsoft Windows web servers. I remember uh, yeah. internet IIS. Yeah, and it was all set to have a shutdown date. So hmm. it was going to do all this stuff, and then it's like at this date the virus would kill itself. It would reboot, and the machines would stop being infected. That was Code Red that did that. I do remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the problem they didn't consider was time zones. Right. I recall so that. All the servers on the East Coast rebooted and stopped being infected, but all the machines <laughs> yes. uh, on the central time zone yeah. and, and Mountain and, and Pacific uh, weren't done yet, and they reinfected the East Coast servers. And then, you know, when the Pacific servers rebooted, they got reinfected by the machines that they had reinfected yeah, earlier. Okay. I, do, I, do, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a clown show. <laughs> Yeah, basically, it's like, do this at this date instead of, you know, the virus didn't have the don't do anything after that date or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and they could have really solved the problem. 
Uh, what I found was that it's surprising that the botnets are not changing the default password to prevent reinfection by competing botnets. Right? Like if you log in with admin admin and infect this device, you you know, what's stopping the next guy from coming in as admin admin kicking your malware out and putting his malware in? Oh, very true, huh? Right? Uh, although the fact that the malware isn't persistent suggests maybe they don't have a way to write to the disk with the way they're exploiting it right now. I'm not hmm. sure. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, it'd be interesting to see them change the password. Yeah, well, uh, Of course, if you're scanning the whole internet, trying this new password on every device to be able to gain control of them or whatever, anybody with a honeypot is going to get that password and very quickly your secret new password is going to be common knowledge to everybody and every other botnet is going to scan using that password as well. Um, True. You know, so now that it's open source, somebody should make a version of this that goes through and just changes the password to something completely random on each different box. Yeah. And, you know, stops the vulnerability yeah. on a million of these devices. Yeah, you own it, but you change the password at the same time so nobody else can own it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, if you, if you set the password to something random, as you, the, the good guy, doesn't know, then every device is now secured because it has its own unique random password mm-hmm. that no one can figure out because right. each one is completely different. Yeah. Like how they should have shipped it. Yes. Uh, although the, the other option, obviously, is to find a way to brick the device. And just, uh, and just, just take it out. kill them all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, of course, the people that own the devices would be much less happy about that one. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't like that to happen to my router or whatever it but is. But then, you know, uh, maybe that'll lead to a class action lawsuit against the the manufacturer for making a device that I could remotely brick. Which would be the least they deserve. Yeah. Of course, you know, they, these companies are one-off companies. You know, they make a new company for each device. So if this happens, that they're protected, right? Mm. Uh, but anyway. Uh, in the days since the 620 gigabit uh, attack on Krebs, the author has been able to confirm that the attack uh, was launched by the Marriott botnet. As I wrote last month, preliminary analysis of the large uh, of the attack traffic suggested that perhaps the biggest chunks of that attack came in the form of traffic designed to look like the generic routing encapsulation or GRE data packets. This is basically um, a way to send packets inside a packet to to do VPNs and things of that nature. Huh. Uh, it's also what's commonly used by denial of service protection systems. Okay. Right? Normally what they'll do, like if you pay for Prolexic, is you'll set the DNS of your website to go to Prolexic. They'll capture all the incoming traffic, filter out the bad stuff, and then use a GRE tunnel to send you the good traffic back to your real web server. Right. Um, so I wonder if the fact that it was pretending to be that type of traffic is actually partly because one or more of these mitigation companies allowed all GRE traffic and didn't filter it because they could, assumed it was their own I could see tunneling. that. I could totally see that. That seems, yeah, mm. mm-hmm. totally possible. Yeah. Uh, GRE lets two peers share data they wouldn't be able to share over the public network itself. Yeah. Uh, one security expert who asked to remain anonymous said he examined the source code uh, following his publication online and confirmed that it includes sections responsible for coordinating the GRE attacks. Uh, so mm. Krebs says, uh, my guess is that if it's not already happening, there will soon be many internet uh, users complaining to their ISPs about slow internet speeds <laughs> as a result of their hacked IoT devices <laughs> uh, hogging up all their bandwidth. This is this might be the one way where we can get ISPs to get more active because this will mm-hmm. suck up their bandwidth. Yeah. Uh, well, enough that the users will complain. And yes, maybe the ISPs will actually do something about it because uh, it will cost them money. Uh, well, at the same time, they're like, oh, 
you know how we put usage caps on all of our users? You know, only so many hundred, mm. hundred gigabytes per month. We can now charge all these people extra for having yeah. these hacked devices. This is another Yay, free money. You just came up with another reason why I hate caps. Yep. Uh, so yeah, these IoT devices are going to be blowing people's caps and causing all kinds of problems. Uh, on the right side, if that happens, it might help lessen the number of vulnerable systems. Uh, on the not-so-cheerful side, Krebs says, uh, there are plenty of new uh, default insecure Internet of Terror devices uh, being plugged into the Internet each day. Uh, Gartner Inc. forecasts that 6.4 billion connected things will oh. be in use uh, by the end of 2016, uh, up 30% from 2015. And they expect the number to reach 20.8 billion by 2020. In 2016 alone, 5.5 million new things will get connected each day, apparently. You know, I just got back from the Open Daylight Summit, and that's a whole, whole conference about software-defined networking. And one of the biggest things driving it is the, quote-unquote, Internet of Things and, and vendors that want to carve out entire networks for them and, and all of it. It is, it is driving this huge expansion right now in networking, and it's causing a lot of companies to work together that didn't typically work together. Like Ericsson, Verizon, and Cisco are all now working together to, to help support this. Maybe maybe there might be a network level solution to some of the security issues, but right now no, they are. There's no there's no solution to default passwords other than don't do that. Yep, I agree, I agree. And the problem is that the, it's still going to be two industries disconnected. You might have a networking industry that's on top of it. You might have ISPs that have entrenched interest in not letting machines get compromised. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have Chinese manufacturers spitting off some crazy. Internet of Things connected device from from door locks to lights that will have default usernames, default passwords, and compromised by default routers and, and networking and usernames and security stacks. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. It, it seems like there's too many different industries mm-hmm. working at different end goals. It's just not – there's never going to be any harmony here. Well, you know, uh, that's why I'm, I'm trying to help develop a, a – toolkit for appliance developers to build an appliance on top of FreeBSD and have secure default passwords, a secure updating mechanism so that you can actually roll out firmware updates remotely and all those little pieces to try to make this problem solved. Uh, And and so that when an appliance vendor goes to do this, they don't have to invent their own and spend a bunch of time and money building these features. Yeah, Uh, because you know they want to they want to make the device as cheap as possible. And and if Uh, if FreeBSD could solve that for them then that would make FreeBSD way more attractive as an OS to go with. If, I mean, if, if an issue the like idea sec- behind the project. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant because security is, I hope, God, I hope, eventually going to become one of the primary factors that these guys market their products on, that they've taken care of this problem. And if FreeBSD is ready, essentially where the puck is already, is already going to, it might just be the kind of thing where they go, well, we need to solve this and Linux isn't doing it. I just saw – I just read um, – a, a stat for Linux Unplugged where it's something like 3.6 years is the average Linux kernel vulnerability that remains in the wild simply because the vendors don't release patches, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to embedded devices. A, a zero-day kernel vulnerability takes almost four years before it's completely been patched in the wild because so many long-tail devices don't get updates. Well, you know, how many, like not just little embedded things at your house, but how many like giant commercial appliances that do yes. important things yes. at, at enterprises are still running, you know, uh, Linux 2.4 kernels. Or so even even something as common as CentOS 5, which is going to be end of life soon, is still yep. massively deployed. 
or Red Hat Enterprise yeah. Linux five, whatever your equivalency yeah. is. Yeah. So and, and CentOS five, like that is end of life. Like how long? Like when was the last release of that? I don't. Even I don't know. know. We. I know. I know that last week we just covered a story about it and how long you're going to get patches, and it's it's the the clock is ticking. It's mm-hmm. it's well, dangerous. Like six is already you know basically on life support. So if you're using well, and, five, and, and and even if you're on six, even if so, here's the other problem. Even if you deploy a system roughly based on CentOS 6, then you're not deploying a modern Linux system. You're not deploying a, a that's, 4... That's 2.6.32. You're not deploying a, a 4.x-based kernel. You're not deploying SystemD. You're not deploying NetFilter. You're not deploying... An well, enti- that's why everybody's still using CentOS 6. There's an entire... <laughs> okay, fair enough. But you know what? You get my drift, right? There's an entire litany of issues that haven't been solved. Yeah, well, and more importantly, it's going to be because you're not using SysMD in the latest everything, nobody's really even looking at vulnerabilities in yeah. the 2.6 stuff anymore. This is my point is that whole open source mantra of thousands of eyes looking at the code only applies when thousands of eyes are actually looking at the code you're using. Yes, and everybody, most <laughs> eyes are focused on the head branch, yes. not the long tail. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's, it, that's why FreeBSD is changing its release model to support releases in a different way to solve part of this problem. You know, the old policy was, you know, uh, even-numbered releases were one year and odd-numbered releases were two years for yeah. the, the point release. So, like, 10.1 would be for two years and 10.2 was for one year and so on uh, after its release. But that currently means that uh, right now we actually support FreeBSD 10.1, 10.2, and 10.3 concurrently. Uh, whereas the new model will be like, when we release uh, 11.1, 11.0 stops being supported three months later. Mm. You have three months to upgrade, and then, you know, you're off. <laughs> is there an implicit guarantee that the upgrades will be smoother with a tighter yes. window like so that? so if you're going with the point release, uh, you don't have to touch any third-party software. It will just continue to work. Ah. Uh, so, like, all your packages are completely compatible. Oh. Uh, whereas when you go major versions, okay. that's when things make okay. uh, have a change. Yeah. And we guarantee that the major version that you – so if you start with FreeBSD 11 – it will be supported for five years. You're just expected to do the minor updates. That makes sense. Yeah. That's that's sort of like Windows in a sense, where you're expected to do the service packs after a while. <laughs> or, uh, or or realistically, like if you think about it, it's just enough where you can encourage people to keep the update window, but tell them the major version will remain stable. The the big changes, the big picture stuff will remain the yep. same. That's I, I think. Well, that's yeah, we're, we're not going to br- anything that worked on ten zero continues to work on ten three. Uh, I think that's and, a good approach. For the whole five years. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, good this approach. this way, the security team doesn't have to try to deal with uh, backporting fixes to FreeBSD 10.1, which is from years ago, like two yeah. years ago and nobody's using yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can move forward. Well, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, no, that's the end of that story. It's interesting how we do keep kind of chewing around this core issue, and as more and more devices ship, the realities of the problem be- – I mean, look at what happened to Krebs. The realities mm-hmm. of the problem are here now. And we've st- when we started this show 287 weeks ago, this was an issue that was patently avoidable. <laughs> like we were talking about it years ago and saying, look, we have to avoid this problem. And now here we are 287 weeks into this thing. And guess what? Yeah. I, I I really expected the number of like default passwords and, and more and worse, the hard coded passwords to go down. I know. Like you we made fun better. of those like embedded uh, or those um, hardened switches for for like running traffic lights and so on that mm. were just terribly insecure. Yes. yes, it's like why is this still happening? I know. 
what what are like I understand the life cycle for building an appliance is like two years. Yeah. And so you know, even if even if everybody started making perfectly secure by default IoT devices now, uh we wouldn't start seeing those devices for like two years. Right. And by then. Yeah. But they're not. So if we don't fix it now. And and that's only for the short life cycle stuff. You know, some of this like uh industrial control stuff, you're talking much longer cycles. And also just decades the companies maybe. that like when the people that buy them only buy new ones every fifteen years. Yep. Absolutely. Like the, the things that control valves for oil pipelines and so on. I really uh, believe we are we are so, we are the generation, and maybe it'll be multiple generations. God, I hope not. But we are the generations so far that are suffering from this transition from f- fully analog valve switches that were valve based, and you cranked a thing to to to, to 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 devices that have a motor connected to them, and that motor has an IP address at the end of it via some device, and that is a. That is a way bigger transition than we realize because we are we are we are literally going from like a kinetic thing to something that can be digitally activated, and I, I think it's going to take us. I think I think we're just too stupid as a people. I don't mean to be so harsh well, about it, yes, but, but I, it's um, just going to take us a while. Well, the bigger problem is the twenty thirty eight problem, right? So because of the way Unix counts time, it uses a assigned thirty two bit integer. Yeah, uh, it means. On January 19th of 2038, that number is going to overflow and it's going to think it's 1970 again. Uh, right? it's, it's the real Y2K problem. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, and yes. So like people have done experiments like buy a CD player from off, off the shelf at your best buy that actually has a clock in it that has the date and tell it that it's, you know, January 19th at on 2038 and then wait an hour and a half for it to flip over and then watch it completely break and not work anymore. You've basically just bricked the CD player. Yeah. Imagine that happening to the pipe controller that runs the oil refinery. I don't know if that's worth it to me. I love technology and I try to put it in every aspect of my life as possible to make life better, but... The problem is, so we know we have to fix this, but we're putting it off because it's like, oh, it's 2038. It's like, but if the device is only get refreshed every 15 years and we need at least two years to develop the new version of the device Mm -hmm. then you know we really got it on this stuff i know or it's not gonna happen yeah yeah and you have to wonder you hope that some places are saying to themselves it's just not time to jump in we'll keep a few extra jobs on hand and we'll have people manually doing this stuff until this is really sorted out or you know I, i i do i part of me has to believe that there is there is a rationale that takes over for people that are really creating systems that are ultimately like super critical and they're saying to themselves, let's not connect this entire network to the internet. I have to believe that's still happening. But we're not even talking about connecting to the internet in this case. It's just that the, it's a, literally a ticking time bomb that's going to stop working. And you know, well, Yeah, in 2030, yes, you're right. Yeah. In 2038, yes, you're right. And, and the fact that we need to address this soon, otherwise the fix won't be in place in time. Because it takes 15 years for these devices to be refreshed. That's probably the best point, is that the frickin' long tail it takes for patches, we have to start thinking about this more than a few years, more than just a couple of years out, more than maybe even five years out. Like 20 years ahead of time to solve this certain problems. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Jeez, You look at the Canadian nuclear reactors were originally based on a VAX. And so they run the VAX software in a VM on top of a PC now. Oh, really? Yes. Instead of refactoring the VAX-dependent code. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was the cheapest solution. I've worked in, in environments where that's the case too. And, you know, maybe that's good enough. You know, the VAX wasn't especially fast, so virtualizing it isn't really hurting performance. But And if you can properly protect the virtualized host, but the requirements of what that host is expected to do are probably going to leave it vulnerable in some way or another, in some capacity. Yes. If it needs to well, communicate with the like, network. Is it running Windows XP and then running VirtualBox? <laughs> if it has to take remote connections and, ro- I mean, there's just certain inherent things that that system has to be able to do. That leave it vulnerable. And, and the bigger question is, you know, what OS is it running and how reliable is that uh, compared to a VAX? You know, yeah. a VAX is yeah. not going to crash very often. Sure, but it really, all you need to own is the VM. You don't need to own the host system. You need to own the VM. And then you've got, and then you got a VM on probably a great piece of hardware that's controlling super critical stuff. <laughs> it's got a best case scenario. So it's not really great either way. <laughs> well, well, your biggest advantage good. currently is that if somebody gets access and they're on the vax they're not going to know what the hell to do because it's a vax yeah (laughs) good point yeah you know this is really honestly the moments like this when you think about these big picture stuff this is this kind of time this is the time where i really appreciate companies like ix systems ixsystems.com slash techsnap they're thinking about this stuff big picture long-term stuff and they're really they're really really good about setting up great partnerships. I'll, I'll give you an example. They have been able to include these incredible Intel processors from the day these things became available to the market to build some of the best products around. They have deals with the hard drive manufacturers, with the motherboard manufacturers, with the case manufacturers. They have in, interconnections with the community, the people that work for them. They really have been able to build a company since before the dot com boom and create a company that's great for you to rely on for your hardware needs. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there, ixsystems.com slash techsnap to support this show and learn more. Grab yourself a little ix hardware for your next build. This is a really, really great way to go. It's one of those like career-saving moves. I have been in a position where I've recommended this hardware OEM or that hardware OEM. In each case, they've had issues, and I... I wish back in the day I was recommending iX Systems. I love it when there's a solution I can get passionate about because I really get this company and I get what they're trying to do. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check out their storage servers. Go check out their iX rack, which is totally incredible. Mm-hmm. And visit their blog to find out what's going on on sort of the cutting edge. Mr. Michael Dexter just posted the OpenZFS conference roundup that he attended. He went there and look at this. Alan, he's got a day-by-day breakdown of the event. This is a good way to approach something like this, including yeah, day zero, which is the social stuff. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, the night before the event started. A bunch of people just met up for drinks or whatever at the bar. Uh, and then they had day one, which was at the uh, Children's Creativity Museum in mm-hmm. San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had the talks, uh, different speakers kind of speaking about uh, different things, including a keynote about uh, ZFS on Linux. Uh, and then day two is a hackathon where they get all the people together and kind of come up with little projects and see if they can't get started on that new feature idea somebody had. What do you think about this one? Persistent L2 arc. Why would that be Uh, good? uh, So so the L2 arc is where you uh, cache stuff to an SSD when your RAM is already full. Sure. Um, The problem is currently if you reboot, your cache is cold. Uh, All the stuff on the L2 arc is ignored and you fill it up again fresh. Ah. So uh, because basically... While you have data on the L2 arc, in order to actually know that it's there, you have a reference for it in the in the main arc in RAM. And so without that reference in RAM, you don't know that that cache is available. So uh, the other problem was you wouldn't want to pause booting up process to read in all that cache. Uh, so this persistent L2 arc project will basically start a background thread that will go through what was already on the L2 arc and re-add the references into RAM, and that will allow you to get back to that uh, faster 
state with the higher cache hit ratio more quickly ah. so that after a reboot, your file server doesn't suffer from yeah. uh, the, you know, depending on your workload, you could be so dependent on those L2 Arc devices that you have to do them, basically. You have to use them to get the performance you need because you yeah. can't fit more than a couple of terabytes of RAM in your machine. looks like uh, also Matt Ahrens did a discussion about device removal, which is particularly mm-hmm. of interest to me. A lot of good stuff going on there. So mm-hmm. look at so, Michael yeah, Dexter uh, doing a great write-up here. Yeah. Hats off uh, to him. And I spotted a bunch of other people I know in the picture there. Yeah, like, I bet. Uh, there. I'm looking uh, at Alexander Moten, who works for IX and, and does... Uh, a lot of the work to keeping ZFS code and FreeBSD up to date with the uh, upstream repo and uh, dealing with the integration and so on. Yeah. IX Systems is really at the cutting edge of all of this. And I, I, I got to tell you, both Alan and I have worked with a lot of different hardware over the years. And there's nobody we recommend like IX Systems. The only sponsor that we've pleaded with to come on our show because we love them so much. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there. Check them out. And see what they can offer you and check out those incredible systems powered by those Intel processors. Talk about two different companies working together to totally kill it. I should, I should have more pictures of hardware from them soon. Ooh. Uh, they, they started building some new video encoding servers for us. And oh, Alan. Those will get here in a couple of weeks. Oh, Alan, I can't wait. I cannot, I cannot wait. Also, I'm super excited about MeetBSD. MeetBSD.com is going on between November 11th and 12th. And uh, I'm, I, be, Basically, Ben put it over the top because so I was like, I'd love to go, but the pl- the closest place I can camp is forty five mile, uh, forty five minutes away. And Ben said, if you make it, uh, you can take my car for the week. So I'm taking him up on that offer. I haven't told him yet. By the way, Ben, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to borrow your car for the week. I'm totally going to make it down to meet BSD. That's my plan, at least. Awesome. Yeah. So I and this will be the first BSD conference I've gone to, and I think this is a good yes. one to go to. And yes. I'm really looking forward to their format, and, and of course, IX is the guys behind it. So check it out. If you want to come say hi to Alan and I, we'll both be at Meet BSD, Meet yep. BSD uh, November Chris 11th will be there as well. Oh, really? Look at the three. I think that's the three of uh, the first time the three of us will ever be at the same event together. No, we did uh, Linux Fest Northwest. I was 2015. Yeah, one Linux Fest 2015. Yep, that's right. So this will be the second event we've ever been together. Mm-hmm. I thought that might be the case. MeetBSD.com. If you could make it, it'll be at uh, the Berkeley campus. Specifically, um, do they say uh, the Clark Kerr campus? Campus, yeah. Which is important to know. The Clark uh, that's the, the building where BSD was actually invented. Oh, look at that history right there. Ooh, yep. it just tastes delicious. MeetBSD.com for more information and iXSystems.com slash TechSnap for the URL to support the show and let them know that you heard about it right here. Okay, so let's now transition to the tale of a DNS packet. I love it, Alan. It's very poetic, really. Mm-hmm. Also known as CVE 2016-2776. Not as poetic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it depends on how you look at it. Oh, okay. Uh, because it's poetic because it could take out the entire infrastructure of the internet. Ooh, it's definitely <laughs> dramatic then. <laughs> yes. uh, so Bind is the most used DNS server on the internet. Uh, it is the standard system for DNS resolution on Unix platforms and is even ported to Windows. Mm-hmm. And it's used uh, in 10 of the 13 root DNS servers that run the yeah. Internet. Uh, Bind was, uh, one of the, other... was one of the first Unix services that I transitioned to when I was in a Windows-heavy environment and I wanted to move them over. Bind DNS, really solid for me. I mean, you got to stay on yeah. top of it. But just yeah. as far as something you can implement on your local network and then really just well, not For a have... long time, it was the only option for a, a proper DNS server. That too. That there too. was a couple of lighter ones, but if you wanted to do yeah. serious business, you right. had to use Bind. Yes, you very much There's did. There's a couple other options now, but... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, where uh, are we today? Yeah, so basically, it's one of the main functions of the entire internet. Uh, 
in some tests done recently by ISC, the Internet Systems Consortium, which is actually the, the project behind Bind, uh, they discovered a critical error uh, when the DNS server is actually building the response it sent to the user. Uh, and there's an assertion in there. So they have a, a check in the code, and it says, if this condition is ever true, crash the server on purpose. What? Yeah. Well, it, well there's a lot of these in Bind, especially starting with Bind 9, uh, because the idea was that if somebody's about to exploit, if do something that could exploit the server, crash instead and don't let them, you know, run malicious code or something in the DNS server. The downside to this is obviously that creates a different kind of denial of service attack. Uh, because instead of having to like flood the server and knock it offline, if you can send it one message that will cause it to crash, well, now the DNS server isn't running, so it's it down. doesn't answer any requests, <laughs> and it's down. That's a hell of a now, denial of service. Normally you have multiple DNS servers, but they're probably all running bind, <laughs> and <laughs> just ping, 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 all the DNS is down. No kidding. And the website doesn't resolve. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so this assertion can be triggered even if the apparent source address isn't allowed to make queries. So some DNS servers are configured to only answer requests for, say, people inside my network, right? Uh, I, only allow, I only answer requests from people on my LAN. People sure. on the Internet don't get to make a request. Right. Well, this one can still be triggered even by people that aren't on the allow list, hmm. uh, which probably means that check of are you on the allow list should be done sooner. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Um, following the tradition of having errors in the necessary software for the survival of humanity – uh, CVE 2667 or 2776 uh, came to light with details uh, of the probably basically nowhere, uh, sorry, with details of the problem basically nowhere to be found, uh, nor was there this mysteriously like, specially crafted request. So, you know, the, the vulnerability announcement says a user could send, a, a malicious person could send a specially crafted request that would crash the DNS server. But it didn't say why or how or any of this other stuff, obviously, because they're like, well, let's get people patched and then explain how it worked right uh but anyway they, these researchers dug into the code uh for the patch and figured out how it worked uh so you see um if you look at the code there you, now that we are convinced that the message res, uh, reserved variable is potentially dangerous when its value is greater than 500 but less than 512 so in that little window there um there's the chance for a problem it says, uh, now it's time to see how we can manipulate this variable. Uh, tracking the use of the DNS message uh, render reserve uh, from the message.c file, we find that message reserved is uh, used to track how many bytes will be necessary to write the additional resource records once the response is finished rendering by the DNS message render end function. Okay. So this little function is responsible for figuring out how much memory we need to keep or how much room in the message we need to keep in order to fit the things like, oh, this is what DNS server came from, and here's the signature and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So they say, uh, the most direct way we found to manipulate uh, those additional resource records that are going to come back uh, included in the response is sending a query with the signature uh, containing an invalid signature. Oh. So if you send a request and include a... Uh, invalid signature in the request, yeah. it's going to echo that back as part of the response. Jeez. So, uh, when this happens, the server echoes practically all of the records that you sent uh, when responding. Uh, so then they provide a script called like uh, name down or something like that, uh, Python script. Yeah. And the following <laughs> script sends a query uh, A to the server with a signature large enough 
uh, so as to make the server reserve 501 bytes in the message reserved variable when writing the response. Hmm. And remember, there's a problem if that number's between 500 and 512 okay. because of a math problem we'll talk about in a second. Okay. Uh, so when it gets to the uh, render begin function, we have uh, the context we're looking for. The message received is 501, and the length of the message is uh, 512. The if condition, which should throw the error, there's no space left, is not triggered. Uh, because um, the reserved amount is 501, and the maximum length is 512, oh, and so it okay. says, oh, that's fine. Okay. If we look at the patch, we see that... Uh, um, we see now that the uh, instruction immediately after the validation, why it's so important to consider the DNS message header length. Uh, so immediately after validating that the buffer has sufficient space to store those reserve bits, the 501. So we know the message can be up to 512 bytes, and we know that we need at least 501 bytes, so it's fine, right? Except for the DNS header uh, goes at the beginning of that, and it's always 12 bytes. So 512 mm. minus 12... Minus 501 leaves, <laughs> uh-oh, negative one bytes left. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, it didn't check uh, if after the message reserved, there's enough room to store the 12 bytes header. Okay. Uh, what happens in the end is that we return from the function, the available space on the buffer is 500 bytes, but we want 501. Uh, or we've already reserved 501 of those bytes. And uh, now this leaves the integrity of the buffer a structure corrupt, uh, because the amount used is actually bigger than the size of the buffer. Uh, all the ingredients are here. We just need to put them in the oven. That's a funny way to put it. Uh, so you can see in the if, what they did is they changed it to the length minus the size of the header has to be more than the amount that's reserved. Otherwise, we return this error. Uh, but they basically forgot to subtract the static 12. And so if your message was, uh, if your message was bigger than 512, then it would be bigger than the maximum and it would break and if it was less than 500 sure then adding 12 to it still wouldn't be over the limit yeah but if it was exactly between 500 and 512 <laughs> then this extra 12 bytes got <laughs> forgot about and you would end up trying to put too much data in the buffer and you'd overflow and start right coloring outside the lines and then everything goes <laughs> just like my kids yeah. Uh, so they say, uh, publishing a fix about a lethal bug where you should have to uh, patch the whole internet uh, doesn't leave a lot of time to find elegant solutions. So if you review the fix, it's possible that uh, new similar bugs appear in DNS message render begin. While the use of this message reserved variable is quite limited, uh, its continued existence as complex software means that message reserved will be, uh, while it's still being used, the existence of other bugs like this is still quite possible. Okay. So... For the security fix for this, the general idea is let's make the fix as small as possible uh, so that people can roll it out quickly. And because, you know, the smaller it is, the less chance there is of breaking something and it doesn't interfere with anybody who's customized the software and so on. So, you know, their diff, there's some other stuff in it, but the main part of the diff is just subtracting that 12 uh, before doing the rest of the math. Um, in the long run, maybe for the next version, what they should do is factor this out differently so that they don't have to remember to do that math because they're likely yeah. to forget again yeah. and instead deal with it uh, in a different way that's less complicated. Um, but yeah. Don't give them tips. Mm -hmm. That's pointers. That's a but you know, uh, it, this is part of the problem with, say, OpenSSL 
when they have vulnerabilities, they're often it's just we throw the fix to the next version and release that rather than have just a patch against the previous version. And so that means, oh, on top of installing the security update, you're also pulling in any new features we happen to have added. Okay, so this is my so this is this is where uh, I have lived two lives. So as a long term support. CentOS, Red Hat Enterprise user, and Ubuntu long-term support. Full disclosure, I have had the most experience with Red Hat Enterprise-supported products in my professional life. And one of the things that Red Hat does is they take, say, let's just say, let's just go with OpenSSH. They take an OpenSSH release and they backport the fixes. And for the most part, that generally is pretty bulletproof. Now, I, I, I compare and contrast that with my experience on... Arch systems, which are always rolling, and they always just roll in the latest feature and the latest version, and as part of the update, you just get that. They don't bother having engineers sit around and backport features to an older version or backport security fixes. They just package up the new version, figure out if it works for a few days, and then throw it into the production release. And ironically, Alan, the version I've had the least issues with is the latter, the rolling version, the one where they give you the newer version of OpenSSH or OpenSSL. Like for some reason, and I, I, it goes against every single principle as an, as an IT person I, I hold dear, but for some reason, that has actually been the more reliable, the more stable. Yes no. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like if I'm getting a new version, well, I should be getting new features. Last- there's config changes. There's all kinds of things that should be changing all the time. But I think because I'm taking them in small in- incremental updates, it's more manageable. What do you think? Right. There's, there's both a, um, So OpenSSL, for example, their most recent patch introduced two new vulnerabilities and mm, yes, then had right. to do a patch for the patch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, part of the problem is that when the upstream project, like, say, OpenSSL, doesn't provide the cleaned up, you know, minimal patches, it makes the backporting process harder and if, increases the chance of a problem. And doesn't it feel like, yes, exactly, doesn't it feel like there's an opportunity for mistakes to be made and you're sort well, of... Well, especially you're... since the person doing the backporting isn't necessarily someone who spends yes. every day working on OpenSSL. So aren't you betting on Red Hat or SUSE or Canonical to make these patches, these backports correct when it... Right. They don't spend... They, I mean, one day they're patching OpenSSL and the next day they're patching Pulse Audio. Right. It doesn't... Yeah. Uh, so FreeBSD currently has a hybrid model uh, where uh, for our packages we offer two versions. There's the rolling release and then we have a quarterly branch. So you stay on the same version but only with security fixes for four months at a time. So you only have to deal with the possible breakage of, oh, we bump to the next major version of Vim and so yeah, the yeah, yeah, color yeah. highlighting doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Or we bump to the next version of uh, PostFix and so the way you have to do <laughs> SFP records is completely different. Yeah. Or the way you set up the checking of SFP is actually a separate daemon that you have to configure. And if you didn't know that, then it's going to stop checking that and yeah. you're going to get and a when I And when I ran large-scale Samba file servers, even the smallest changes in how Samba uh, functioned or how it or, or defaults that would change in the config files would be massive changes to me. But now, um, 10 years later, I don't actually feel like that's the case anymore. I feel like the— Well, the, part of it, you know, uh, we've stabilized things and, and yeah. hopefully— the, uh, especially if you update once every four months, the chance of the change being radical is a lot less. Whereas if you, you know, are jumping from CentOS 5 to CentOS 7, <laughs> you're yeah, going to have a hell of a right. time. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why the idea of giving you the security branch where we're going to yeah. own, not not surprise you, but expect you to take the big jump once every four months hmm. or three months. Yeah. That 
is a little easier to swallow than every time you go to install a patch, something might change radically, right? I agree. Because that's how you get people not installing patches, right? Because it's like, oh, I can't install this patch because it's going to break my mail server. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or this default Uh, behavior will change. The behavior will change. Well, you know, in in FreeBSD, we have this thing called POLA, the policy of least astonishment. What is it called? Hold on, hold on. What is it called? Pull out? Policy of least astonishment. Is it called the pull out? Is it called the pull out? POLA. P-O-L-A. POLA. POLA. Okay. (laughs) And and, and, and the the what? It's the policy of least astonishment. That is, we make the change in such a way to reduce the surprise of the sysadmin. You know, yeah, I like when, that. When it's time to update, the sysadmin shouldn't be surprised. It should be the least shocking possible option. I like that. Not, it did what now? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there is there is a psychological component to, to this problem. And uh, well, the, the, you get two different types of users too, right? Uh, desktop users want the latest and greatest of everything right now as sure. soon as possible. Yeah, what's trends? Yeah. You, maybe, you know, on your server side, it's like, well... I want all the performance fixes and, and some of these new features, but I also want my mail server to not just break tomorrow when I update <laughs> Or my it. file server. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And so, yeah. It gets – there's a lot of different sides to the coin and it's hard to, to balance those all the right mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. I just wish there was more money and time and energy spent on auditing this stuff. Or I, even just maintaining it. You know, Alan, I would honestly... Like how much of the software hasn't been touched in a couple of years and could be due with a cleanup and a look at? Yeah. Boy, that's frightening to think of. But um, I would love to see a third-party company come along or, or somebody who is truly independent and look at Red Hat's patches, Canonical's patches, Debian's patches, Fedora's patches, SUSE's patches, and, and honestly tell me... Are they actually f- by backporting? Are they actually fixing the problem? Are they true? I mean, I, I, I all I have to go on is the trust of the company and their word. There's nobody that's actually verified that backporting fixes the problems. Right. Uh, yeah, it can get a little complicated, but mm, yeah, you know, uh, it's because the the Red Hat guarantee is that we're not going to change anything up from underneath you. Uh, in a in a major version, yeah. right? If you have CentOS six, it came with PHP five point two, and you wrote your app on that. And we're not going to suddenly one day upgrade to five point six where you can't pass call time references anymore, mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that. I think I would argue that that is not sustainable. I feel like that's a, well, it, that's a, tep- a separate that, show, but uh, doing that for X amount of time is fine. But yeah, eventually you have to move forward. And but but be realistic. Red Hat and its customers really want even longer than they, they want get. ten years. But let's yeah. be well, real. Like, isn't there's, that there's isn't a company that... selling commercial support for FreeBSD now, and they want to do fifteen year support cycles? Because if you're install, you know, if it's a software on the cash register at McDonald's, that's what McDonald's expects, right? They don't want to have to refresh it any more frequently than fifteen years. Yeah, but. If you look at the last four or five years and look at how mobile has changed connectivity or you look at how much internet uh, connectivity has, has increased in the last five years, that's not, that's not a sustainable approach. Someone using Android 1.x for 15 years? <laughs> Let's see that happen. Great point. Great. I mean, that's just that's not, that's not, that is, that, that, that sounds ridiculous, but that's what they're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. There was a great, uh, there was a Linux 
uh, Linux. Uh, oh boy, I can't remember the name, but it was something about it was a Linux security conference, but it was more about the internals of Linux security and less about like all of the services around Linux. And the, the general approach was, how come we're not building a kernel that assumes it's going to be attacked? Let's assume that this operating system is going to get probed. Let's assume that somebody might get access to the user land. Let's assume that somebody might have a kernel level or memory exploit. And if you build a kernel with those assumptions in mind, how can you how can you set it up so that it protects itself so that it is it is it is more layered and uh, it, it, it's it's being driven that conversation is being driven very very heavily by Google right now because of Android and and it's it's, it's the the Linux kernel problem, and and a lot of other dis, a lot of other projects, but it's, it's great to look at the Linux kernel because it's it's such a great example of of a widely used open source project. They their their solution to security and bugs is is well everything's a bug, a, a, an issue with a SCSI driver and a remote code execution vulnerability. Those are all bugs. And so let's just fix bugs. We're going to just fix bugs. We'll bug triage. We'll have bug reporting. We'll have bug deputies. We're going to have outreach. And all of this like bug fixing mentality doesn't actually solve the problem because like I just mentioned last story, some of these issues remain for four years. If you don't solve and build a kernel. You can't solve security without a plan before you start writing the code. Right. Is is part of it. You know, you you can – you can do a lot of patching and bug fixing and solve – plug the leaks, but it, does, it doesn't stop new leaks from forming necessarily. And, and ways you haven't even thought of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, any other thoughts on this particular story? Uh, nope. That's it for that one. Well, I love it. And we will have links to infosec.com in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. And I, if you're listening on the audio version, I kind of recommend it because there are some really great screenshots that illustrate exactly what Alan's talking about. So there's some good visuals in this particular story. So check it out. We'll have it all linked in the show notes. But in the meantime, I want to tell you about our friends at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com, and you can go get my mobile service plan right now, techsnap.ting.com. It's only pay for what you use mobile, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Those three categories, they add them all up, and whatever you actually use from any one of those three things, that's what they charge you. It's $6 for the line, really straightforward, and I like it. I like it a lot. <clears throat> I, I, when, I, when I signed up for Ting almost three years ago, I signed up as an individual. This was, my, this was my, like my personal thing that I'm doing for my own cell phone because I want to move around. I want to try iOS devices. I want to try multiple Android devices, and I don't want contracts. I don't want early termination fees, and I love only paying for what I actually use because all day long i've got wi-fi and as soon as i get home i've got wi-fi pretty much anywhere i go i've got wi-fi except for the driving between those places and that is what makes ting killer techsnap.ting.com you go there they'll take 25 dollars off your first device techsnap.ting.com will also give you a 25 dollar service credit techsnap.ting.com go there try them out try out their savings calculator they have CDMA and GSM networks. You get to pick whichever one works better for you. They have a savings calculator. I call that the litmus test. You try that. If you pass, you should definitely switch to Ting. If you don't pass, all right, your current mobile service provider is doing the job. Good enough. Call it a day. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there. Try them out. They have a bunch of great devices. So they start, I think this is incredible, $9 for a SIM card. You have an existing CDMA device? You have an existing GSM device? Move it over to Ting. Just start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Nine bucks for that SIM. They have the Ansatel and the Kyocero Dura 
$63 for these phones, no contract. $63, no contract. $63, no, no early termination fee. They're just feature phones. And, of course, they ramp all the way up. But I want to spend a minute. I want to talk about the Tribute 5 from LG. LG has made some of the greatest Nexus phones that have ever existed. LG doesn't have some sort of big overarching scheme like Samsung does to get you to use their special interface. LG just makes a great phone. They make the hardware that a lot of other people base their phones off of. The LG Tribute 5 just hit Ting for 121 freaking dollars. $121, no contract, no other termination fee. It's unlocked. You own the freaking device. $121 with that kind of money? You could buy that outright and own it and then go get a DSLR. You're worried about the camera on your phone with the extra money you spent over for like the Pixel? You could go get the DSLR or the iPhone? Go get the DSLR. Ting has got a wide range of devices from the basics all the way up to the very, very top. And you could just bring your own device too because, again, CDMA or GSM. Come on, that's super easy. Go check them out at techsnap.ting.com. And even if you're not ready to switch to Ting, I encourage you to go check out their blog. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. They just got a great update for those of us who are cord cutters. Uh, I think the Roku is one of the greatest devices ever created by man, especially the one that has the headphone jack in the remote. If you're married, that is a no-brainer. Roku has new updates, new releases, and Ting's got a breakdown. Techsnap.ting. Com. Go check them out. Support this show by visiting that page. Try out their savings calculator. Look at their blog for all the great things they talk about and try out some of their devices. TechSnap.ting.com and the LG Tribute 5. Come on, $121. It ships tomorrow with a SIM card included. That's a great phone. TechSnap.ting.com and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. If you have a device you want to connect for remote management, if you have a security system, if you have a phone, all of it is just $6 a month. TechSnap.ting.com. I thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. So, uh, of course, Mr. Jude, we mm-hmm. have to cover one of our favorite topics. I was just talking to my lady friend about this. And, and you know, so I have the uh, – I've now officially switched over to chip and pin for my mm-hmm. uh, debit card. I, I think that the number one thing I'm disappointed in is all of the systems that don't require chip and pin, I just still swipe my card like a regular debit card. Today, I bought gas, and I just I swipe the card with the chip and pin. I don't even enter the pin code, and I just bought $60 right. worth of gas. Like, well, it, if it's a swipe, then yeah, there's yeah. no pin ever. Yeah, I, so it's, but, it, but this particular topic, ATMs, skimmers, and all of it has been an ongoing cov- uh, area that we've covered. And Kaspersky actually put their money where their mouth was. Maybe they, caught, maybe they got a little investment from Putin. I don't know. They went out and they actually re- like recorded real-life people getting hacked on ATM skimmers and all kinds of stuff that we talk about constantly on the show, like real-world stuff. Well, this, this one's specifically about jackpotting ATMs. So I think these were ATMs that they bought and set up. But okay. All right. So, could, so, what is a jackpotted ATM versus like uh, an ATM skimmer? Like, what's the difference there? Well, so, a, a jackpotted ATM is where you can walk up to the APM, ATM like it was a um, uh, machine at the casino, whatever sure. it's called, yeah. slot machine. Yeah. And okay. uh, press a button and have it go jackpot and just spit out money. Right. The, the term oh. comes from a, a old like black hat conference where a guy uh, had one that dispensed gold bars and just walked do do and just. And it starts okay. popping out gold bars, right? <laughs> okay. All right. That's, um, that sounds like so my yeah, kind of ATM. Jackpotting an ATM means basically walking up to an ATM and having it dispense money 
not from someone's account. Just having it just, spit out the money that's in the machine. Just okay, dump the money in the machine. Okay, all yeah. right, I got it. Okay. So method one, the fake processing center. Uh, so with this one, you basically disconnect the network cable that goes to the ATM. Like if you remember that one, uh, Krebs showed a picture of, and there was like a a Wi-Fi router sitting on top of this ATM in front of a supermarket. So oh yeah. yeah, you can just see the guy just walks up to the to the router on top of the ATM and unplugs, unplugs the, back the, of the network Ethernet. cable that goes to the that's the key cable that goes to the um, the ATM and plugs it into his little Raspberry Pi with a battery he's got there. And now when the ATM tries to call the bank to find out if it should let card number so and so have this much money, uh, the Raspberry Pi just always says yes, regardless. So, yeah, you disconnect the cable from the ATM and connect it to your Rode device, like a Raspberry Pi. When the ATM asks the bank, which is now your Raspberry Pi instead of the connection to the bank, if it's okay to give this person money, then it says yes. Uh, With, and, and, and I guess the, impl- the, implied, the implied vulnerability there is the ATM isn't checking the authenticity of that yes. Yes. Uh, of the connection in general, yeah. So this is uh, the box is used to control the cash trays and send commands to the ATM requesting money from the chosen tray. It's as simple as that. The attacker can now use any card or input any PIN code, and the road transaction will look legitimate to the ATM. Yeah. Uh, so this one obviously requires a bank that's not using SSL or something to secure, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, after we go through all the different types of attack. So method two, which is the remote attack on several ATMs. So with this one, uh, this method involves an insider working at the target bank or something like that. Uh, the criminal purchases a key from the insider that actually opens the ATM chassis. Mm. The key does not give access to the cash trays because okay. they're in a separate box. Yeah. But it exposes the network cable. You know, most of these ATMs are installed in walls and so on so that you can't get to the network cables. But if you have the key and you can open up the ATM to service it, then you can unplug the Ethernet cable. <laughs> Uh, yeah, then and, you, you know, can. The hacker if, disconnects the ATM for the bank's network and plugs in their special appliance that sends the data to their own server. It it, to, it looks like if I was going to build a cabinet with a computer in it, that's how I would build it. Like, mm-hmm. if there's nothing fancy about it. Here's an Ethernet cable yep. plugged into a thing. It's and then, really like, you simple. see, there's actually like the back of a regular like uh, PC desktop form factor PC yeah. in there. Yep. Or a tower <laughs> turned sideways. Yes. Uh, but it gets even crazier when we look at the third one uh, because when you you saw him pull out the screen. What you didn't see was attached to the back was a keyboard that you can pop out. Oh, my gosh. Alan. You'll see that in a second. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so network-connected ATMs are often not segmented uh, you know, or separated for security, meaning that if you get this installed in the network on one of these ATMs, all the other ATMs in the area, like especially you know, if there's like a bank of them, like four, you know, usually they're all in the wall side by side by side. Yeah. Uh, hacking one of them could compromise all of them. Jeez. Because you just put your thing on the network with them and they talk to it instead, right? Uh, you know, in this case, uh, with such a device, a hacker can compromise several ATMs at once, even if the malicious devices are connected uh, only to one of the ATMs. Uh, so everything else after that is the same as method one, except for it works on even ATMs where the network cable isn't really exposed because you now you've bought it from someone that worked at the bank or from the Internet somehow got a key to open up the ATM. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, in some of them we've seen that they just cut a, a hole in the plastic. Yeah. That or whatever. yeah, that's what I was just telling my girlfriend about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like they just go barbarian on the thing. <laughs> yeah, because uh, they know there's a USB port behind the plastic. Yeah. Uh, method three, the black box attack. In this attack, the bad guys directly connect their black box to the cash trays. 
and send the commands to spit out the money. So in this one, he opens up the machine and connects his Raspberry Pi directly to the, the actually, I separate think black box you know that what? actually spits out the money. Watching the video, it's a she. It's oh, a she that connects it, yeah. Look at that. And that's a Raspberry Pi right there with a 4 gigabyte yeah, so SD card. So they unplugged the it. USB cable that goes from the computer to the cash tray. Yeah. And plugged it into the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. And now they just send commands directly to the cash tray to spit out the money. Uh, this is the one we've seen before. Uh, as previously described, the attacker obtains a key to the ATM chassis and accesses it, but this time puts the machine into maintenance mode. Then the attacker plugs a so-called black box into the exposed USB port. The black box in this case is a device that allows the attacker to control the ATM's cache trays directly. While the attacker tampers with the ATM, its screen displays a message like maintenance in progress or out of service. Although in reality, the ATM can still draw money. Moreover, the black box can be controlled wirelessly via a smartphone. The attacker can just tap a button on the screen and get the cash and then dispose of the black box later to hide the evidence that the machine was ever compromised. So, yeah, you can just walk up to the machine and be like, hey, give me all your 20s. And the machine <laughs> goes like, all and right. And you walk away with all the money. And it doesn't even go out of anybody's bank account. Uh, method four, the malware attack. Uh, there are two ways to infect a target ATM with malware. One, by inserting a malware-laced USB drive into the port. This one requires you to have a key to open the ATM chassis. Or by infecting a machine remotely, maybe having first compromised the bank's network or something like that. Mm. Or, you know, the one where it was on a probably not very secure Wi-Fi. So in this one, as you can see, that's just the back of a regular computer. It's even got a DVI connection to the screen there. Uh, and there, there's the keyboard. And a nice little holder that just pops out very nicely. Gotta love that one, eh? Uh, yeah, really. It's just, like uh, best case scenario. Here's the keyboard. It's already pop, connected. Pop a Windows shell because the ATM's running Windows. And now you're at the command prompt of CMD. a Windows machine. CMD.exe, buddy. Yep. And then you're like, uh, hey, how about that money? You want to spit some of that out for me? <laughs> you know, if the ATM is not protected against malware or does not employ whitelisting, a hacker can run malware to send commands to the ATM and make it dispense cash, repeating the attack until the cash trays are empty. Of course, not all ATMs are hackable. The attacks described above are feasible only if something is misconfigured on the ATM or someone managed to get a key or whatever. Uh, it could be that the bank's network is not segmented or authentic, uh, authentication is not required when the ATM software exchanges data with the hardware or there's no whitelist for the apps or the network cables are easily accessible and so on. So, you know, not all of these attacks are going to work against every ATM and every bank and so on. But all of these do work in some cases, which is crazy, right? Hmm. Uh, so, this is, so there's a number of ways to address some of these issues. For method one and two, normally uh, you defend against this by using TLS, right? SSL. Yeah. Uh, so of course you would want to encrypt the messages back and forth with the bank's processing center, right? That's, you know, when people think TLS, they think encryption. So yes, of course you want that. You also want the integrity check uh, that SSL provides. Without that, I as the attacker could do a legitimate withdrawal for $20, but change the message as it's going through. Uh, to make it, say, $2,000, right? Uh, or the other way around. I could say, hey, the change the message coming from the ATM going to the bank, I didn't ask for $2,000. I asked for $20. The bank says, oh, $20 you can have. Uh, and then the machine says, gets the back the yes and spits out the $2,000. Uh, so you want the, authentic, uh, the integrity check, which is also important. But the biggest one is obviously it provides authentication, the assurance that the remote end is actually the trusted bank, not a bad guy. Right? This is the big thing that SSL provides is that server, you know, 
some certificate authority promises that that's actually who it says it is. Uh, right? You know, they uh, with the EVSSLs or whatever, they actually have to check some paperwork. I'm like, we send an email and the person was able to read the email, so it proves they own the domain. You know, SSL's not as strong as it once was, but anyway. Uh, the ATM should have a list of trusted certificates. They don't have to be from a real certificate authority. Yes. The banks don't need to deal with yes. that. They can have their own thing uh, specifically so they can avoid a certificate authority being compromised. Right? You can do self-signed keys and just you know make the bank's CA and the bank's ATMs only trust that bank um, and refuse to process any transactions if the communication is with the third party. But apparently some of these ATMs aren't doing that. And are just talking directly to the bank, and anybody can plug a Raspberry Pi into the cable and pretend to be the bank. Now, method three requires uh, some way to establish trust between the ATM software and the cash box. Yeah, the actual, yeah, yeah. The dispenser. You assume that you uh, assume there's not some. Well, right now it mostly seems to be that USB cable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, part of the problem, even if the messages between the computer and the cash box were encrypted and authenticated and integrity checked, like with SSL, say, uh, the issue is that the private key used to sign the message on the ATM before sending it to the cash box to prove that it's from the real ATM, well, that key is sitting on the ATM. And if I have a keyboard and pop a window shell on that machine, I can get the key and sign my fake request, too. So that doesn't necessarily help, right? If the, if the, AT, if the cash box trusts the ATM then the ATM having malware or uh, someone having access to it means that you can't trust it anymore. Right. So how do you secure the communications between these two boxes when you can't trust that the, the machine that's supposed to be sending you the messages hasn't been compromised? Well, you know, so I was sort of – I was holding it because I was going to say, well, Alan, let me tell you something here. I've worked in the banks for a long time and they build the security around assuming that they're on a private ATM network, which is point to point between the central office and the ATM. And and, and this kind of stuff doesn't matter. But you're right. It, it does assume a certain well, level this, of built-in trust. You're talking about the network. This is literally the cash box that yeah. the the – Brinks people fill with money yeah. and the, <laughs> yes. the, the PC that runs the screen where you press the buttons. Uh, if I can get a keyboard and, and run commands on the Windows command prompt on that machine, then it shouldn't be trusted anymore. So yeah. one possible solution to this is that the ATM sends a request to the bank. The bank signs it with their key and then that goes to the cash box. And the cash box will only issue money if the bank said it was okay. And the key the bank uses isn't on the ATM anywhere. Then maybe uh, it would work. But usually these cash boxes don't have a, a whole computer and operating system in them, right? They're a little like you know, a microcontroller or something that just gets told, you know, uh, flip out this many bills from this tray. You know, they don't have a whole operating system where they're going to do SSL verification or signature verification to make sure that the command is actually legitimate. <laughs> You know, you know, it's like how many different computers do you need in the ATM in the end? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and then method four, uh, which is I stick a USB stick into the ATM and it's got a virus on it and I take over the Windows machine. Um, solving that, basically, you have to use software whitelisting. Basically, where the code has to be signed by a certificate trusted by the bank. Uh, and then the ATM will only run software that the banks uh, you don't, that the machine can verify actually came from the bank, not from just rando people. You don't feel like the core issue here is that they're using generic PC hardware with generic PC operating systems. Um, using a specialized computer would just be security by obscurity, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, they'd have to keep so it up. Common off-the-shelf stuff is fine. They just have to, 
you know, enable software whitelisting and actually sign stuff and actually use SSL. Right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I completely, it just never happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it would be a lot harder for the bad guys to get malware into the ATM if the ATM only trusted software signed by the bank. Mm-hmm. Of course, if they can hack into the bank and sign their malware and then use the bank to distribute it to all the ATMs, that doesn't help. But you can reduce the attack surface a lot by doing this software whitelisting. I think right? part it, of the problem is is that these guys that manufacture the ATMs software and the hardware themselves, they have to sell them from everybody from like Bank of America to some small independent bank that only has five branches. Well, it's not even that. It's that you get these ones in the convenience stores that aren't from a bank oh, at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, especially the ones that are literally for-profit ATMs. Right, or where it's like you ask it for twenty dollars and it takes twenty two fifty and, and keeps yes. the, in the store. The guy that put it in the store gets half the money or twenty two ninety five. Actually, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, yeah. It sucks. I, I haven't used one of those ATMs in a long time. It sucks, I, and there's I only. There's, well, I mean, it's worse in Canada. You get charged an extra fee if you use one that's not from your bank. Yeah, that's kind of that happens here too. Yeah, that does yeah. happen. So but, yeah. I. I there might be a bank fee. Try to find the one by yeah. my specific bank, yeah. Yeah. and I have slightly more trust in it. I hate that, actually. Yes. Three bucks, two ninety five is a very, very common ATM fee here. Yep. It's ridiculous. I, I almost wish they'd charge me the five cents, to just make it three bucks, so that way they'd be honest about the fact they're trying to make me feel better about three dollars. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to make it look like it's not three dollars. Yeah, they're trying to trick me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts on that guy? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. All right, then I'll tell you about our friends at DigitalOcean. In fact, if you go over to DigitalOcean.com and take advantage of their great infrastructure and spin up a rig, just use our promo code SNAPOcean. It's one word, lowercase, all together, and get a $10 credit. Now, you can spin up a rig for $5 a month. I give you 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, or a terabyte, or including a terabyte of transfer. But I was going to say... Really, what I would do is I would I would look at their hourly pricing where you can really mess around with some serious hardware. And with our $10 credit, it's not going to cost you anything. Just use SnapOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering you the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a server. Now, easy doesn't mean it's dumb. Easy just means it's not going to take a lot of your time. And they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, India, etc., I got them all over the world, and they have a great interface to make it all possible. Very simple, very straightforward, and an API that frickin' rocks. And the reason why I mention the API, you start with the interface, you spin up the rig, but then once you actually have in production, that API is so nice. It's very good. It's, it's one of those things where I don't even really I – don't, I don't often interact with the DigitalOcean website anymore. I have to mention it for the ads here, but I don't actually use the website UI much uh, because we've we've built tools here at JB around their great API. DigitalOcean.com. Use their promo code SNAP. I love your IRC bots to turn uh, droplets on and off. Yes. <laughs> yes. Droplets on and off via the IRC bot. Also, the uh, if you're watching live, you can vote on the topics, also powered by uh, the same kind of thing back in you know we just we just use the API to to have these systems available when we need them also one of the things i really like about digitalocean is their grade a documentation they have mm-hmm. editors full-time staff members who edit this stuff they pay community members for their contribution and you can check it all out not only do they have entire application stacks you can just deploy with one click but then you can really take it up a notch by using their documentation digitalocean.com just use the promo code snapocean Go try it out, spin up a rig, try something out, experiment. In fact, even when just like I would launch, my, my desktop has frickin' KVM, and I use GNOME boxes. Like I could spin up a virtual machine on my own. 
But in reality, when you have a promo code and you have the infrastructure and the speed that they have, it is my go-to every single time. And then what I love about it, I build these systems, I try them out, and if I like them, I throw them in production, $5 a month. DigitalOcean.com, just use our promo code SNAPOcean, and a huge thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean to try it out. Now, uh, just before we went on air today, Mr. Jude, the mm-hmm. beard, in all his wisdom and his hustle, released episode 162 of the BSD Now program. Episode 162, the foundation of NetBSD. What's this about? Yes. Uh, we have an interview with uh, one of the board members of the NetBSD Foundation. Uh, they're also USB, uh, EuroBSDCon Foundation. And, ah. Uh, talk about a lot of interesting things, including uh, getting started in BSD from a science perspective rather than a, a you know computer's perspective and really? also getting started as a sysadmin rather than a developer. Oh, that sounds right up my alley. 162 mm-hmm. of the BSDNet program. You guys, go grab the HD version. You can download that, get more junior in your face right before the show wraps up because this is about the halfway point. Do you want to give like uh, like a half tease for 163? I suppose uh, I could tease people that uh, you might want to tune in live for BSD now next week uh, because we have an extra special returning guest. Yeah, one that we always uh, love. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. I think this episode will have to be... Uh, return of the Cantrell, because last time was Cantrell Strikes Back. <laughs> I love it. That's a great naming scheme. So uh, to find out when that's live, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. But get started by listening to 162. So you're ready to hit the ground with 163. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click on the BSD Now show. It just came out. Or hit bsdnow.tv. All right. Now, with all of the news done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe you started a thread at techsnap.reddit.com. And Andrew writes in our first question of the week, and it's about MySQL replication, probably on the minds of many of our listeners out there. He says, uh, could you please explain how MySQL or MariaDB replication works. I know there are different ways of configuring it, master to master, master to slave, and so on. But I'm really, uh, but really, I'm not understanding how this works. How does each node communicate? Is it via SSH? Other magic? What are the binary logs? You know, the bin logs. And how do you add new nodes? Thanks. Right. So, uh, in MySQL replication, you uh, there's. Uh, part of the confusion is there are actually different kinds of replication. But the most common one that we just called MySQL replication, uh, what happens is on the master, you enable binary logging. And basically what it does is every time somebody does a query that changes the database, it writes that query into the log file, mm. into this binary log file. Then your slaves or your other masters will connect over the MySQL actual connection, speaking the MySQL protocol. So it doesn't use SSH, it uses the SQL protocol, the same way the client connects to a server. Um, by default, that's not encrypted, uh, but you can configure it to be over uh, SSL, so it's encrypted. So uh, um, so the replica- are, you, are you talking about the replication connects over the MySQL protocol? Yeah, so uh, when, when a, a master or slave yep. is connecting to, a, to the master to yeah. do replication, yeah. it connects over the regular MySQL protocol just like a client. It actually, you have to create a user that has the replication and, client. And that doesn't use uh, SSL or SSH. It doesn't use SSL by default, but you can tell it to use SSL. 
I think that's key for Andrew to understand because he was wondering yes. if it uses SSH. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't use SSH, but you can configure it to do SSL for uh, security. Because um, even over your LAN, you probably don't want your database stuff streaming back and yeah, forth. Yeah, because you can just have you can have users just just doing. Yep. I mean, I was a user on a LAN many times running TCP dump. Yep. So exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> so basically, every time somebody does an insert or an update or whatever on the master, it gets written to the binary log file. Then on the slave, there's two threads: the I/O thread, which is actually going to connect over the socket and download that binary log constantly, basically stream it. Uh, and get each new update and put that in the relay log on the slave server or the second master. Um, then the SQL thread is going to go through that binary log file and run all the same commands. So basically, when you have a slave, a command happens on the master, changes the database, goes in the bin log. The slave then fetches that log and puts it into the relay log on the slave, and then it runs the command and then advances the relay log past that so it knows where it left off. The downside to this setup is that, obviously, when you do the insert on the master, uh, it could take you know a couple hundred milliseconds before it actually shows up when you do a select on the slave. Uh, the other thing is that this is single-threaded in MySQL, so uh, if you're doing, you know, if hundreds of queries are happening at once and they're going in the bin log, the slave can only play them back so fast because it's only doing one at a time. Newer versions of MariaDB have the ability to run those uh, the sync the the relayed things multiple at a time. Uh, although I think there's a you know there's some locking to make sure you know it matters what order they get done in, so it can only do multiple at a time if there's multiple databases or at least multiple tables. Uh, but there is an optimization in MariaDB to be able to to keep up more uh, by using multiple threads. Yeah. Um, so then in master master, you get, so in master slave is fairly easy because the slave is basically read only, right? If, if you make a change on the slave, you, you should actually set the slave so it can't have any changes made on it. Uh, but if you do, it would just be, it would only exist on the slave and then your database would be out of sync, right? If you read the value from the master, you get answer a and read it from the slave, you get answer B and that's wrong. So they have what's called master master replication where basically server a is the master and server B is the slave, but Server A is also a slave from the master that is B. So when you do the insert on the ma- on server A, it goes in there with the, the server number set to A, and then it gets replicated to server B. Uh, and say we're doing, actually going to do master, master, master with three masters. The insert happens on A, goes in the bin log, gets relayed over to B where it gets run and goes in its bin log, where it gets relayed over to C gets run, puts in its bin log, and it goes back to A, but there's a setting that says, hey, don't run things that came from yourself. So when A sees it come all the way full circle back to it, it doesn't do them and it's breaking the loop. Yeah. And this way, if you do an insert on any one machine, it goes through and gets back to every other machine. Uh, and that works. Uh, and the advantage to that over master-slave is it means you can do writes on any of the servers uh, rather than only on the master. Of course, every write has to be done on every one of the servers, so it doesn't actually help you scale that much. Um, And it can easily get out of sync, and it's very fragile. (laughs) Um, So that brings up the complicated question, how do you add a new one? Yeah, that that was the next part. Yep, part two. That gets really complicated. Uh, Basically, you have to do a database dump of... Uh, one of the running ones, and there's an extra option in MySQL dump you can set, which it tells you 
the offset in the binary logs where you want to start from. So it basically, it flushes the log file and ends the current log file and starts a fresh one and writes down all the numbers so that you can tell your new machine, after you import everything that's in this dump, uh, you're at this point, so pick up on the next thing and then you'll be able to continue and go on. Uh, but yeah, especially if you have this three master setup and you want to add a fourth into it, you have to like stop the slave on server one, uh, insert server two, get it caught up, and then pick up where you left off, which can be really complicated. Yep. Been there, um, done so that. So MarioDB also has another feature called, I think it's GTID or Global Transaction ID, where instead of having to know exactly where in each individual log file you might be, because on each server it's going to be different, it has a way of synchronizing exactly, it basically having the transaction IDs be global across all of your servers so that you know, all right, this is the last thing I was on, and I can pick up off any of the masters. Alan? Uh, and that helps a lot. Um, Damn it, Alan. Could you because, could you have a better answer for a question that we have? I think it's been 100 episodes since we've answered this question. Look at you. Look yeah. at you. Um, <laughs> and then other things. So um, one of the things I do is because when I want to take a backup, I want to freeze the database. Yes, yes. Uh, I, have a, you know, I have my master and my slave, and then I have a second slave. And I will actually stop replication on it, stop reading. Uh, so I'll still be reading the uh, replicated stuff from the master, but I won't be running it. So I, I leave the IO thread running, but stop the SQL how do you, thread. How do, you, how do you do that? There's an SQL command. So, okay, okay. So let me understand. So you are not, wait, hold on. You're reading them, but not committing so, them to the database? Right, I don't so understand. I, uh, so there's two threads, right? The IO thread downloads the binary logs from the master and stores them on the slave for us to run. Ah. And then the SQL thread actually runs them. Yes. Okay. So okay. We download I do follow. Them because I do eventually follow. the yep. server, yep. the server is going, the master is going to delete its logs after a certain amount of time. Right. Now mine's like fourteen days, so it's okay. Okay. But some of them it's relatively short because you only have so much storage space. Yeah. Um. And so you don't want if your slave gets too far behind, it could get, you know, the log it needs might not exist anymore, and then you have to start the replication over, which is a big pain in the butt. Yeah. Yes. So I leave it. Let it keep downloading stuff so it, it it can catch up faster this way, but I stop making any changes on the slave. Basically, I lock the slave. Then I can do my dump, knowing that the whole time nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. Once the dump's done, I can start the SQL thread again, yeah. and it quickly gets caught back, reads up, back to up to what was uh, okay. real time. That makes sense. Uh, whereas normally, if you try to run that on, on your production database, um, you know you would have to stop anybody from writing the whole time, or end up with a backup where you know this <clears> table's <throat> from this time and this table's from after, and they don't work anymore. Yeah. Uh, so. <clears throat> You know, in almost every setup, you probably actually want to have master slave, even if it's even on the same machine or whatever, just so that you have this ability to do a backup. Although uh, Percona makes a tool called Extra Backup that can kind of do this without needing to do that. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's one of the options. Yeah. Then separately, MariaDB has a new feature called Galara Cluster, mm. which allows semi-synchronous replication. So Semi. in this one... Uh, so, so currently with the way regular MySQL replication works, it's asynchronous, right? Mm-hmm. You do the insert on the master and eventually the slave gets it. Right. Who knows how long it could be. Right. Right? Like if the slave is paused for database backup, it could literally be hours before it actually sees that change. I, I have actually seen that. Yeah. Now, if you did fully synchronous replication, that means when you do an insert, uh, the command wouldn't return and let yes. the website or the application continue until every single server in the cluster had that 
Which change. is extremely expensive. I mean, that's... Yeah, it, it can really slow down the database server unacceptably. Yeah. Uh, so with the Glara cluster, you have the ability to basically wait until it's synced into RAM on all the nodes, but not necessarily on disk. Okay. So that, you know, the nodes will eventually write it out to disk and be safe, but, you know, you allow the application... You consider you if it's in RAM good enough. Yeah. Uh, because if the machine loses it, yeah. it will... Its replication pointer will be the the command before, and it will right. redo that command that it lost. Right, and so it should never get out of sync. Uh, yeah. So MariaDB has this Galara cluster thing, which allows you to have a better guarantee that when you do an insert on the master, it will actually be on the slave. Because hmm. the other the problem you have is if you do an insert on the master and you you reads from the slave, but what if the thing you just inserted hasn't got to the slave yet? Exactly. All right, and so it makes your application much more complicated. You have to be like, yes. all right, if right. we're writing, we go to this server. If yes. we're reading, go to this server. But if we just wrote and we need to be sure that we can read that information back, we yeah. have to actually go to the master. And when, you, and when you're implementing at that level, it's never consistent over like a couple of years. It's just – Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Galara cluster has some advantages, although it's a little more complicated, depending what your use case is. Uh, you know, For us, it was you – know, we have the master, a slave in case that master is down, another slave for doing backups – and actually, maybe another one that's actually off-site. Yeah, uh, and right. that one could be seconds behind all the time. It doesn't matter. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. So that's that's but, a great yeah, answer. The uh, the multi-threaded replication in MariaDB is really nice, just because you know if there's a hundred queries per second going on in the first database server, your slaves can have trouble keeping up if it's only doing one of those at a time. Yeah, it has to wait for each one to finish before it does the next one. Yeah. Where if it's like, oh, you know, I have a hundred different databases, I know that this command only touches one database i can run one for each of those databases at once and get you know keep up a lot more quickly okay now we're gonna shift gears i feel so, yeah, bad that for- was that was like a two-line question that i <laughs> talked about for 15 minutes. i loved it uh so i feel really bad for craig so i had to throw this one in our feedback this week um He's got a drive failure. He says, hey, guys, my buddy who is a Windows user, of course it's not Craig, uh, cannot even plug in his Western Digital Elements hard drive anymore. Since I'm a Linux user, I can at least get the OS to recognize it, but his OS doesn't even show it as a device. It gets an error about mounting. Please see the screenshot attached. Any thoughts on how to fix this? I get test disk and found nothing. Now, me, being the horrible person I am, I did not grab the screenshot. However, I could probably look it up. In fact, I'll look it up right now. But I thought maybe we could take a moment when you're dealing with a drive failure and you're, the, the issue is the, the freaking OS isn't even allowing you to mount it. It might show up as a device from time to time. Where do you start with this kind of thing? Um, probably something like DD Rescue to try to get as much of the data as you can. Uh, although he used Test Disk already. Uh, so what is Test Disk? Uh, so Test Disk... Uh, is a weird name for an application, but basically it goes through and looks for um, the. So you know, there's a command on uh, all the Unix is called file, and mm-hmm. you can file in a file, and it mm-hmm. looks at the first couple bytes of the file and can tell what file type it is from that. Yeah, right. Like almost all file formats have some marker at the front to let you know that this is a valid JPEG file or this is another file. So test disk can scan through a disk looking for this header that means you know this is a JPEG, and be able to, without having to know what file system it is, just find complete JPEGs on the disk and pull them off and throw them in a directory for you. Okay. Uh, you know, great, especially for, say, an SD card of a camera with some errors in it. The file system's corrupt, so you can't mount it on Windows or whatever, or even on Unix. Uh, but you know, it's, you know that on the raw disk, it's full of JPEGs. 
and it can extract a lot of these. It doesn't help if the files are fragmented because then, you know, you've got the first of one file and another part of another file. But on an SD card from a camera, that's less likely. You know what would uh, be, be really helpful? Uh, and, and feel free to disagree, but <clears throat> like the smart info about the drive or something like that, like a little more info to, to, to troubleshoot here would be really helpful. Yeah, so this one looks like there's a – Definitely looks like a maybe a bad sector or something. Yeah. And part of one of the metadata files is negative one when it's expected to be 128 kilobytes. And so we didn't get, uh, NCFS yeah. isn't able to mount it. I like that. You know, Craig Craig, I would I would suspect that if you can see the device on your Linux box, try try the uh, package DD Rescue, which is DD, yeah. but with a little more features for for your situation. Uh, retry a couple times, but yeah. don't retry forever. And uh, basically, it'll give you an image file that was everything that was on yeah. the disk that's readable. Yeah. And then you might be able to mount that or yeah. somehow repair it to the point right. where uh, you'd be able to use it. So it's interesting because you're in a position where a lot of forensics people have to work from. You want to you you influence the disk as least as possible. So if you can work from an image copy of it, DD Rescue exactly. is probably the way to go. Especially if the hard drive's dying, you don't want to be using it any longer than you have to. So get the DD Rescue copy yeah. of it. Yeah. And then you can do all your science on that. And then that, go stick it in the freezer. And, oh. <laughs> No, that's not an official tax snap recommendation. Don't stick right. it in the freezer. Um, However, go stick it in the freezer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I know people have gotten to the point of actually sending stuff to drive savers. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah, sure. I've done it. That, but, I've had to. I've had yeah. to use drive savers before. Huh? It was uh, I. There's a plane going overhead right now. There was, uh, there was. It was back in the XP days, and I was just joking around with a coworker, and I was teasing him because there was a flaw in Windows XP with his particular hardware where. You just use the USB bus too much, like mounting and unmounting devices, and it would blue screen his his machine. So me, being the funny guy that I was, I would go up and I would unplug his USB drive a couple of times and his XP box would blue screen. Linux user, right? So, of course, I got to do that. And it ended up hosing the file system on the stick. Yeah. So for those of you who unplug your USB devices from Windows machines without safely removing them first, don't do that because there has been no change in the tech since I did that hack or that prank, I should say, years ago. And then we ended up having to save the thumb, send the thumb drive to drive savers. And I, I believe it cost us $4,500 for a tiny thumb drive. So, so don't do that. Don't, don't be like Chris. Carl writes in with what he says is, quote, unquote, a good ZFS question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alan and Chris, we have two. I'm, I'm sorry. We have a ZFS pool. Compromising of three mirrored VDEVs, backending the storage for VMware, which is vSphere. Over time, the pool has grown to about 70% full, so we're looking at adding additional mirrored VDEVs. If we do so, the array will be imbalanced. That is, the new VDEVs will have no data, and three existing VDEVs would be 70% full, which raises some performance questions. Question number one. He's got two, so I'll stop at at the end of number one. Um, If we add, say, two identical VDEVs to the pool... Will new writes be distributed equally? For example, will a 5-megabyte write be equally, say maybe about a, a megabyte, to each 5 VDEVs? Or will a disproportionate number of blocks be written to the empty VDEVs? If the so empty stop, v- stop sure. um, That question slightly depends on the version of ZFS you end up using. Okay. Um, before, it would balance towards trying to write some more of the data towards the empty ones. Uh, it with the target of eventually having all of them get to 99% full at the same time. Now, this is newer or later? That, that's uh, So older ZFS 
would target at getting all the drives to 99% full at the same time. So it would write, say, like two-thirds of the data to the new one and one-third to the older that one. That sounds familiar. Like we've talked about that yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. Um, the newer version instead biases towards performance. So it will write one block to each of the five VDEVs, and then the VDEV that finishes first gets the next block. How, how and new? it just like, keeps feeding blocks uh, on to whichever VDEV isn't busy right now. That's, I mean, that sounds like the better way to do it, thinking so about it. But it, do I, how, how likely faster. does he have this? Is that very, um, very new? That's new write throttle probably doesn't have it yet. So uh, new it's, write, it's in FreeBSD head, but it's not in a release okay, so version. So new write throttle is something to keep an eye out for. Yes. Uh, so with that one, it will write the data as fast as possible, not caring about how full the VDEVs are. I like it. Now, because of fragmentation, the more full VDEVs will be slower, uh, even if they're all exactly the same hard drive. Okay. Uh, because it takes less time to find a blank space to put the data if it's made up of lots of big chunks of blank space. Yeah. So this will make the, the fresh VDEVs faster until they eventually uh, slow down because they're more full. So at first, they'll get even more of the data, and then slowly they'll get more and more close to uh, the same amount of data. I follow. Are you ready for the yeah. second part of part one? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. If the empty uh, VDEVs write disproportionately more blocks than the others, is it done by then an algorithm, say, like megabytes free, or is it opportunistic? I can imagine that an empty, unfragmented VDEV would simply outperform a full one, thus sinking a disproportionate number of blocks per write request. Can you speak to the impact of this that will have on overall IOPS? Right. So actually, we just said. You did. You, you kind of did. Yeah. Exactly right. So. Old ZFS, uh, <laughs> write a disproportionate number based on an algorithm to try to get to the same percent full at the same time. Uh, new way, opportunistically, write so, to whoever's finished. You know, uh, do you it feel has a like, queue of writes, and it just keeps sending them out to whoever finishes first. Do you feel like if he already has a system in, system in production today, it's probably not using the new method? So should he plan accordingly? Um, so... It'll be fine. It'll work fine. Yeah. Just if he eventually gets onto the new system, it will deal with this. Better. It'll get them in sync more quickly uh, by writing more to the to the faster drives, and it will uh, give them slightly more of the IOPS. When would be the first chance he'd have that in production, like a stable like release that he could throw that in production? I don't know if that will be in FreeBSD 11, okay. which will come out on Monday, <laughs> or if... Uh, you'll have to wait for like 11.1, which would be like three months from now. But it might be, if I'm following, it might be worth upgrading these backend systems to the 11 release, assuming that a point release down the road will have this feature? Possibly. Uh, does Possibly. he say if he's using a free NAS or what? He didn't he say. But anyway. no. uh, it, it basically, new development in ZFS has been done to try to make this situation better uh, in the case of what they call unbalanced LUNs oh, this is, this uh, to is... increase the performance of those even more. Because the downside to writing more of the data to just the new drives is when you go to read, you're only reading off most of the data is on these two drives rather than evenly spread across all the drives. Right. Re so the new it formula probably does is, more reading than anything. Yeah. So yes. uh, the new formula isn't, you know, try to put, you know, uh, 60 40 on the on the more empty drives it's right to all the drives but don't get slowed down by the slower drive so if you're uh, mostly full vdevs are willing to do enough of the writes they'll get uh full as, as quickly as possible 
Okay. So some writes will always go to the more full VDEVs. There is a sissy tail you can set that sets at what point you stop trying to write to that VDEV. Um, so you can say once it drives 80% full, stop trying to do new writes to it unless everyone is already 80% full. Um, but I don't think you have to worry about that one. Can I ask you a so, question? Yep. So we're talking about this in terms of free BSD releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, uh, if I'm if I understand correctly, would this be a feature set flag that would eventually be part this of this one? It, uh, doesn't change the undisk format, so it's not going to be a feature flag. Okay, uh, but it is in the head version of Illumos now, and in the head version of FreeBSD, and I imagine ZFS on Linux will have it in the next release or the one after and that. And is ZFS on Linux based on? Open ZFS. So if yes. I like, so if I track the features of the Open ZFS project, uh, will I have kind of an insight of where ZFS as a whole across Linux and BSD is? is- yes. So uh, basically, the way that most of the development happens is a new feature is developed in one of the uh, right. OSs, like FreeBSD or Lumos yeah. or Linux. Right. Like uh, this, this unbalanced Len thing was developed at Delphix, which they run Lumos, but they have their own version of it called Delphix OS. Uh, whereas the uh, the upcoming uh, ZFS encryption that does it like profile system with different keys that's coming from Linux, uh, and other features come from VSD or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so they, they they exist there first, then they get upstream into the open ZFS repo, and then all the OSs pulled them down from there. Uh, so yes, um, Linux is is definitely getting caught up and will likely have these features uh, in relatively short order as well. All right, so it sounds like it's coming soon. All right, so here's part two. Uh, short of removing all the VMs from the pool and then moving them back, is there a way to force an immediate rebalancing of the pool in place? And again, thanks for in advance for the great program and helping to promote and demystif- demystify this incredible file system. Boy, isn't that true? So, yeah, what do you uh, think about that? Removing all the VMs and then moving and then moving them back, is there a way to do an immediate rebalancing right. of the so, pool in place? So in-place rebalancing, No. Uh, obviously, the best way would be if you could back up all the VMs and then restore them onto an, from your from empty pool with all your VDEVs being the same. But that's you know pretty unlikely. Uh, however, if you were to say ZFS send the one VM from the pool back to itself, it would end up mostly on the new drives, but partly on the old drives. Uh, but if you did that a couple of times, you might be able to bounce them out a little bit. Okay. Uh, but uh, and that's where that that flag that. Um, Allows you to limit the um, the once the drive so full, don't write to it. You could turn that down to say sixty five or sixty percent, uh, since you know that you're seventy percent full. And then if you do stuff, you'll uh, any new writes will go only to the new drives, right? And then so you can move a certain VM say over to only from being only on the old drives, only on the new drives, until you've freed up a bunch of space and got those a little bit more equal. Uh, but in the end, you probably want to try to split them out evenly. Uh, but yes, there's no in-place rebalance. Uh, that feature is called the block pointer rewrite, and it uh, doesn't exist and probably will never exist. It turns out to be really complicated. <laughs> and and So instead, we... what we have is this unbalanced line feature, which tries to yeah. uh, maximize performance while dealing with this problem. So that uh, that's a very fascinating problem, Carl, and uh, thank you for writing in. If but, you're... Uh, basically, because it's copy on write, eventually your VMs will uh, update most of their blocks and will even out across the drives and, and stay nice and fast. So it'll work out. I like it. Uh, Carl had a great question. If you have a great question, even if you have a question you're not sure is it advanced as Carl's, but you still want to 
get that problem solved. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and email your free tech support, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Uh, also, if you didn't hear your question... It's tech support. It's, it's like high-end consulting. You know what? You're absolutely right. If you want the TechSnap Consulting, email us. And and if you didn't hear your email answered and I haven't replied to you directly, there's a possibility it, it just got lost in my inbox. So go over to the TechSnap programs. Uh, go to the contact page and choose the TechSnap program from the dropdown and send it in again. There's a, there's a high possibility we just missed it because we get a lot of questions in. And I, even, if you don't, even if we don't read your question on the air, we still read it off air and try to respond to you. And there's – like we got – a lot of emails about the Brian Krebs story that we covered last night about his DDoS, some great insights from some of you out there and some thoughts about why he switched over to Google. That stuff's also appreciated. Even if we don't read it on the show, it still informs our discussion overall. So you can find that at the contact page. Also, why not check out the subreddit? That's a great place to leave feedback too, techsnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit towards the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read more after the show, because I know there's never enough TechSnap. And some of these links came from our incredible subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. What makes it incredible, you ask? Well, that's the header image, techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story came from that subreddit, and you've probably heard about it. An NSA contractor has been arrested in a possible new Edward Snowden-style theft of secrets. Now, this guy worked for Booz Hamilton, or Booz Allen Hamilton, I think is the yep, name. Yep, which is the uh, same company that uh, Snowden worked for. It is. It is. Yes, yes. And uh, apparently this contractor had documents in his car, in his home. He was 51 years old, and he was arrested during an FBI raid on his home on August 27th. And it sounds like it's a, it's a kind of a – it would have been a big deal, but they stopped it before it became a big deal possibly. Mm-hmm. However, the, the, the timeline well, is They don't know odd. for sure if he'd give it to anybody. Right? Yeah. The timeline's a little odd. It is, but uh, I don't know. It's, it, it is sort of interesting from like a what, what could we possibly have learned standpoint. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think it's worth, worth noting on the text. It would be program. really interesting to see the NSA's paperwork and, and all the documents they've generated post-Snowden on, you know – Snowden and, and, related and, things. and preventing a Snowden-like thing from happening again. They, they are probably way more proactive than they even were then, which is, yep. which is probably saying something. So how about this one? If you got a D-Link router, I think this, is, this might only apply to the ones that are LTE yes, D-Link routers. talking about but, uh, one specific model in this case. It's got a backdoor uh, so and this sucks. Yeah, so uh, the router D-Link's W or sorry D-Link D D W R nine three two B nine three two B has twenty known vulnerabilities, <laughs> including a backdoor, a backdoor account, a default no! Wi-Fi protected setup pinup, and some others. Uh, so it says here uh, it has a hard-coded SSH key, um, uh, SSH and Telnet run by default on this router, on top of uh, two backdoor accounts, which can be used to bypass HTTP authentication. Um, yeah, so uh, the password for admin is admin, and the root password is 1234 by default. In addition to the backdoor accounts, a backdoor in the device's software also exists. So even if you change those two passwords, uh, if an attacker sends the string H-E-L-O-D-B-G, or hello debug, uh, yeah. to the router's UDP port, it allows root access to Telnet. 
No. Uh, the router also suffers from a hard-coded pin for Wi-Fi protected setup that can be gathered from either the router's app uh, management program or the host AP configuration tool. Uh, if for some reason an attacker didn't want to use the hard-coded WPS pin, they could easily generate their own temporary pin uh, by knowing the algorithm. Um, the credentials used to con- contact the firmware's over-the-air update server. So uh, the this router has a feature where it will auto-download new firmware. Uh, except for the credentials used to access are a dying DNS no IP account and is uh, hard coded, uh, so someone could easily hijack that and uh, inject malware into all these routers. Uh, the router's UPnP permission rules are misconfigured. That means an attacker could forward traffic from the internet interface into the local LAN, allowing them to actually port forward into your thing and get stuff behind your firewall, making it the worst firewall in history. Because mm-hmm. you can just say, "Hey, firewall." I'd like to go here, and they will let you. Whereas, obviously, UPnP is meant for machines inside the land to ask for access, not the other way around. Uh, say for example, an attacker could add a forwarding rule to allow uh, traffic into a local server. Uh, the fact that the router has a sizable memory, uh, 168 megabytes, and free space of 235 megabytes could make it an enticing target for attackers. You know, uh, obviously, a machine like that that has that much free RAM is quite nice. Like, even the the router I bought only had 128 megs of RAM and like no free space. It had like eight megabytes of storage in total. Uh, so this router is quite beefy and would make a great target for one of those you know Internet of Things type attacks. Especially if you can use UPnP to open up the ports. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, people could use it to sniff on your land, to access machines behind it, to do man in the middle, all kinds of terrible things. So yes, if you have a DWR uh, 93.2b, uh, you should probably unplug it and try to return it or throw it away or whatever. Oh man! So that's uh, that's that's a nice way to summarize that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just get rid of it. Um, so we've talked about Telegram and WhatsApp and different encryption schemes. The only time it really matters, though, is when they've been challenged. And this one, for that reason alone, is kind of interesting. This is over at the Daily Dot and, of course, a thousand other online outlets. Encryption app Signal wins a fight against the FBI, quote-unquote, wins. Um, and the FBI wanted to know records. And Signal had to publicly answer this. And they did so. And, and, of course, they're getting some hay out of this, but I think they've done a really good job. In fact, they've managed to il- illustrate publicly that they only have the following information about Signal Chat users, the last connection date and the account creation date. They have no other data, including who you talk to, the metadata around that, and your chats. They don't have it. So when they the FBI store it so that they can't be forced to give it away. It's yeah. the only way to do it. Uh, I think that is I, – I think it's – I th- I uh, I don't know how to I don't so in the context in fact I think we have it coming up in just a minute so maybe I should save it but in the context of the Yahoo story that we're about to talk about this is a big deal and it's kind of a big win for Signal to be able to publicize yes, this but the other thing is at some point Signal could be forced to I start agree. keeping that metadata well we'll talk about Yahoo and I think that's what happened to y- Yahoo yes. Yes, well put. All right, so do you want to, first, before we get there, though, do you want to talk about this uh, uh, CVE uh, 2015-8960? Rolls right off the tongue. Yes. So the TLS protocol, version 1.2 and earlier, support uh, RSA-fixed Diffie-Hellman, DSS-fixed Diffie-Hellman, RSA-fixed elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, and ECDSA, elliptic curve DSA-fixed elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman values for this client certificate type. 
but do not directly document the ability to com- uh, compute the master secret in certain situations where a client secret key and the server public key, uh, but not a server secret key, which makes it easier for a man-in-the-middle attack to spoof TLS servers by leveraging knowledge of the secret key for an uh, arbitrarily installed client uh, certificate, a.k.a. the key compromise impersonation issue. So, turns out, in implementing client-side certificates in TLS, the following browsers have done it wrong. Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Microsoft Internet Explorer, Opera, and Apple Safari. Ah, no names. Nobody's ever used those browsers. Every browser. (laughs) Every browser did this wrong. Yes. And uh, this is a a CVE score of uh, 8.1. Yep. uh, Because it's... uh, High. A high impact. Uh, so the impact is only 5.9. The exploitability is 2.2, but its attack surface is huge. Because hmm. it's a network attack, so that gives it a higher value. Uh, the complexity is high, but the privilege required is none. The user interaction required is none. And uh, the confidentiality problem is high. The integrity problem is high. And the availability problem is high. Because yeah. it allows... Uh, unauthorized disclosure of information allows unauthorized modification and allows disruption of service. Yeah, not good. No. Okay, so um, I got this really nice soapbox. It's polished. It's really sturdy. I can stand on this thing for a while, and it's called Android. So here's a great one. The bad kernel vulnerability that affects one in 16 Android smartphones. Now, Smart- that doesn't seem like a very high number. One in sixteen when you have billion uh, when you have a billion yeah, but, users. But I think most other Android vulnerabilities have been like one in three. Oh well, <laughs> you know what's ironic about it actually is simply because so many of them don't have enough updates. They don't have this vulnerability. That's actually the problem because when Google transitioned over to their new V8 Chrome and JavaScript engine, the the one that's that's like sort of key to Chrome, when they made this transition, that's when you got vulnerable. So if you if you have an Android device that doesn't yet have Chrome. You're not vulnerable. But then you're also on such an old version of Android that you probably have – and I, I wish I was exaggerating when I, when I say this next number – but you likely have hundreds of other vulnerabilities. So the issue at play here has been discovered and fixed later on, but, the is, but nobody's updated. It's an issue in the Google V8 JavaScript engine, which I actually think we've covered in this show. And it exists between versions 3.20 and versions 4.2. So if on your Android device... That's actually kind of a small window. Right. Like most people, like 3 was pretty much tablets only, right? Right, right. And, and then... So that's like four zero, four one, and four two. I guess a lot of people were on that for a long time. Yeah. Well, we're uh, not, I remember we're not I talking. Take a, a shot of I don't know if my camera will adjust mm, so you guys should read that. I don't think know. so. But remember, uh, we're not talking Android versions. We're talking Chrome versions. Oh. Yeah. 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 Well, the Chrome version is like eighty, isn't it? <laughs> on desktop. Uh, yeah. 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 I agree. It's it's confusing, but yeah. There you go. Can you oh, almost? Now my phone turned off. Oh. Damn it. One sec. And you have the six, right? Which yeah, is a monster is in size. Six. Yeah, there you go. Okay, now it's working. Yeah, now it's working. You can see the patch level there? Kind barely. Hold on one sec. Where's the... Auto-patch? So there's the 6, version 601, October 5th, 2016, patch level. Yep. Yep. So you're current as of yesterday. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was, that's what makes me happy. I agree. And, you know, it's funny because I get into these conversations specifically with, like, Noah and Rikai, mostly Noah. And, and, and for Noah, he's okay with a piece of hardware... That like say he buys a Samsung S six that doesn't get updates for six months, he's totally fine with that. And for me, I I want a month. 
as a, I look at Android as a Linux user. And as a Linux mm-hmm. user, I understand that there's constantly shit thrown at Linux and there's constantly fixes being deployed in Linux. And if you're not running a semi-modern kernel or you're not getting active backports, you're vulnerable. Period. Mm-hmm. That's the choice well, you this make. This is definitely active backport. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Kernel yes. is uh, 3.10.40. So I'm okay with that. If you if you mm-hmm. if you if you productize Linux and you fork it in in a sense, and you you're shipping a product that's based around a certain version of Linux and the kernel and the packages, I'm okay if you backport and you do it right. And and let's be honest, Google has proven to have a good security record here. They obviously know what they're doing. If they backport it properly and they supply the fixes, I think if you if you understand how all of this stuff works and you don't have an Android device that gets active security updates, you are electing to just not care about a significant issue that's in your pocket. I, I, I just can't see it any other way. Yep. And that's why both of us, when we have Android devices, we run Nexus devices. Yep. Uh, but, you know, Google's come up with the Pixel and it's already been revealed there's going to be a bunch of Pixel-specific things. Hmm. So it looks like they're trying to kill off the Nexus line. They actually I – think, I think in an, in an interview they, they did say that they are not going to continue – yeah. The Nexus line. Now, if they if the Nexus line means the Pixel line, and in a couple of years, in a couple all, of years, all it takes is some vendor to decide that they want to target people that know how to use computers and want a secure phone uh, to you know make a Nexus like device. You know, hell, <laughs> how much money can you make making a new phone and being like, we promise we'll do a security update every two weeks. I know. I wonder Even if that it's full of nonsense and doesn't actually do anything. Will my will my Nexus 6P get four to five years of updates now that they've launched the Pixel program? Four to five, probably not. No, That's, the iPhone does. The iPhone does. That seems to be the industry standard. They, I don't think they go that far on the iPhone. Do I don't know either. I, I you might be wrong, yeah. but I do know that the iPhone. Well, I think three it's, years is is I think well, enough. Hold on a second. <laughs> iOS 10 compatibility. Let's take a look here, right? Because I think it's the five or the five S that uh, yeah, still but support those that old. Well. Kind of. Kind of is. It kind of is. It kind of is. So the iPhone, sure the iPhone 5. All right. So the iPhone 5 can currently – now, would you want uh, to install the latest a iOS? 5S, a 5S is exactly three years old. A 5S. So yes, a 5 – Yes, announced September 2013. So then a 5 would be, uh, a f- would be five years old? Um, no, four. Four. It came out September 21st of 2012. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So your iPhone 5 is less, uh, well, you know, unless you bought it the day it came out, it's not quite four years old yet. Well, most Apple users probably did, let's be honest. But, I mean, I guess my point is, if 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 Apple can ship updates for, would you say, four years? Yeah. So that would be the, I'd say that should be the benchmark of the Pixel, right? Sure. Don't you think? Yeah. Why, uh, but, you why know, can't Google, with all the of their engineering, all their software problem. expertise, why can't they do better than Apple? Apple's a hardware well, company. Yes, but the see, iPhone has, you know, what, like four devices they have to support? And Android has how many hundred different Yeah, but, but how, many does, how, many, how many Pixel devices are there? That's what I'm talking about, Pixel right. devices. They right, should the, be able to do the this. Software is a little more generic. But, you know, uh, yeah, so you I, might had right. old, you might I had right. old Nexus S. And it was fine, and it got updates until they did one too many updates where the software was so slow that Google Maps would hang and stop giving me directions. That sucks. It's the problem, right? So eventually, the OS gets to the point where it expects more RAM than your old phone has. Yeah, yeah, you got to cut it off at some point, right? Yeah, and I think 
three or four years is good. Like obviously yeah. we can't have people forcing you to buy a new phone every year or something, especially if they're going to want $1,000 for the phone. Yeah. I, I, I feel but. like three years is good. Four years is nice to have. Yeah. That seems reasonable for a phone. I agree. All right. So we'll see. We'll see. So uh, the memo has an article on this high-tech card that is being rolled out by French banks to eliminate fraud altogether. Uh, well, Kill fraud, Alan. Come on. Not altogether. I doubt it. Uh, but, and apparently these are also already out in Poland. Uh, but these are credit cards where the CVV number on the back, you know, the three-digit code on the back, it changes automatically once an hour. It's like the little RSA oh, tokens. Oh, yeah, it is. I think there's a, there's a picture or a video of it. Uh, one of the other pictures in the article, I think. Okay, I'll scroll down. But uh, there it is. And you can see that number. Oh, yeah, like, the, like the pin code, like the security yeah. CVV code. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, people aren't supposed to store these in a database. So when credit card numbers get a uh, database of credit card numbers get stolen, they don't ever have this number. Uh, but that doesn't actually. <laughs> so this would be a way to actually prove that you have the card in your possession because that number changes so frequently. You know, uh, I think I, I don't know how frequently it actually is. I think it's once an hour. But that would, uh, you know, yeah. if you're doing online transactions and the person actually has the right number, you can be reasonably sure the card's not stolen. I've been really disappointed with the chip and pin rollout in the U.S. Because um, here's the thing. The card reader either supports chip and pin. And when it doesn't, I just swipe my card. And, and today I bought gas. I didn't have to supply my chip. I didn't have to supply my pin. I just mm-hmm. swipe my debit card and I'm buying gas. Well, would you rather the card didn't work if the gas station had updated their – like because in yes, the case of the gas station, they would, would actually have to replace their pumps. Yeah, I know. I would. I would like them to well, – I would like – You might be able to have your bank set a flag for that. I actually. would like the multi the, – I mean, when I say multi-billion, I'm undershooting. I would like the multi-billion dollar Chevron corp- Corporation to have to go out to all of their pumps and update their card readers. I would. I wish I wish that could have happened. I do wish that could have happened because it seems like to me the fact that I can just swipe my card and not supply my chip or my pin leaves a fundamental vulnerability in the system that – why wouldn't I just yeah. exploit that? Uh, of course, the problem is that uh, I forget which state, but a judge in some state just authorized a class action lawsuit uh, from small vendors against the banks for forcing them to upgrade a chip and pin. I honestly would rather they force me to use my phone. I just anything other than the existing system. It's so now all I have is the inconvenience of chip and pin without the security of chip and pin. It feels like a. It feels like I got nothing. I find out of this. it less. It, it takes me less time to type in my pin number than it does to sign a little piece of paper or wait for the receipt to get printed out just use the credit card transaction function because yeah now now i'm inserting my card i'm using my pin i'm taking my card out i'm putting it there's like there's been nothing gained because the it feels like only i would say honestly one in three merchants even support chip and pin to begin with so right whereas in canada and europe everywhere does yeah you know, uh, you know, if I'm spending less than fifty dollars, half the time I just tap and don't even deal with the other stuff. Yeah, that'd be nice too. So this one's kind of funny, and it's actually making a lot of headlines today, as we re- right now as we record the the freemium service, as you could call it, of Spotify, is dropping malware on users' browsers. It's pretty Probably alarming. Probably not. Go ahead. Specifically, uh, well, it's, I, it's I've only read the, I've only read the beginning bit. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I haven't read it either, but I'm assuming it's just the ad network dropping stuff. Yeah, well, they say the uh, oh, it's, it's collecting personal private data. What? 
Yeah. Uh, Spotify, the free software, started launching malware on Macs using Safari on its own. So they would go to launch you to an advertiser, but instead of an advertiser's page, it's a page that has right. malware. So this, in, the, in this particular case, it was the ad network that was a problem, not necessarily their software. They weren't doing it on purpose. No, no, of course not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Firing oh, I'm software. sorry if I gave that impression. No, no, no. In fact, well, the entire no, reason— making sure users understood that Spotify isn't purposely trying to infect you. They're just using an advertising network that has bad stuff in it, yes. which— Basically, every advertising network does, and we should shame the advertising networks into submission. And it's something we talk about all the time as a threat vector on the show. Yep. So I just wanted to mention it because it's happening to people who use frickin' Spotify. I think that's awful. Yep. All right. So how about this one? Uh, hack warnings prompt a cybersecurity uh, cyber quote-unquote, fatigue. Like, all of these, like, oh, like, Russian hackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, oh, of course. Emails again. I agree, Alan. I think this is actually yes, a problem. Basically, this stuff happening constantly has got people to the point where they just don't care. In particular, you know, we said, I guess it's not actually in the round of so We haven't really talked about the Yahoo thing. But it turns mm. out their stock has not lost any money because of this. Because it's the point now that nobody is like, yeah, so you're like number 120 in line with whatever you know i think uh yahoo stock got a boost from the fact that it you know the numbers were out to how many users they still actually had i i this was the number one thing i was worried about uh from a from a content perspective when we started talking about the snowden leaks is i've always been worried about fatigue because literally we're talking about a private company that was compelled by the united states government to alter their spam filter to monitor communications in real time, domestic communications in real time on behalf of a government agency. That's fascism. That's what we're talking about here. But we've gotten so used to it that it doesn't seem like a big deal individually. And you know what else is, of course, other companies have made these same changes. So I agree. Uh, And the BBC News is picking up on this. There is a bit of a fatigue. Uh, And then, of course... Well, it's just like, you know... uh, Password resets. At some point, you're just like, uh, again, yay. Mm-hmm. Right? It's kind of unfortunate. And then there's these things, like these big outages that hit the whole East Coast over here. I guess there was a major outage that knocked out all major phone providers on the East Coast. Level 3, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, Sprint, Vonage, U.S. Cellular, Time Warner, Charter, all out. Did you get hit by this at all? No. Yeah, I guess it must have been at the border. And then, of course, T-Mobile was uh, making hay out of it. But T-Mobile had some issues. In fact, T-Mobile customers were struck by it because the backbone they're, com- they're connected to was having issues. So the yeah. landlines, T-Mobile customers that have the T-Mobile landline, out. <laughs> Man, that's Although, a... I guess we didn't throw this one in the roundup, but then there's Verizon saying, uh, yeah, we will fire any of our technicians who try to repair copper lines instead of switching yeah. people to the copper to mobile. What are your converters. thoughts on that? I thought about throwing that in the roundup. Is yeah, that's... Uh, that's pretty terrible. It you know, is. It, it proves that they're perp- actively not maintaining their network, and they're trying. To, and it's like the problem is that those wireless things are fall over much easier, especially during an emergency. Yeah. And you know, people that depend on it for monitoring of their like their pacemaker or their home security system and things like that, the wired phone line is the better solution. Yeah, I'll tell you the other thing that's kind of like a little bit of salt in the wound because that's really it could stand on what you just said alone, but the the salt in the wound. The sprinkles on top is that uh, these companies have been awarded ginormous, ginormous tax write-offs to lay this infrastructure down. The U.S. Mm-hmm. consumer 
in taxes has paid for all of this infrastructure, and now these companies – so it's publicly funded infrastructure that these companies made millions off of, and they're now just deciding, well, we're not going to maintain it anymore. They got paid for we it. We want to spend the money on the other infrastructure. They got paid have. for it. They got tax write-offs, and now they're just going to say, ah, we're not going to maintain it anymore. Yeah, we don't got to – yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Pick me up. Pick me up with this Unix recovery legend. What's this about? This classic yes. article here. <laughs> yes. So this is a – you know, if you've ever RM – RF slash or star before, uh, you know, this is a great story of how they got it back. Uh, so basically, you know, it's like, have you ever left your terminal logged in only to find when you come back that a supposed friend had typed RM minus RF uh, tilde slash star to delete your home directory and uh, was hovering over the keyboard uh, with threats along the lines of <laughs> let me $5 till Thursday or I'll erase all your files, <laughs> things like that. Uh, he says, it was a quiet Wednesday afternoon and uh, 1st of October to be precise when Peter, an office mate of mine, leaned away from his terminal and said to me, Mario, I'm having a little trouble sending an email. Knowing that the message uh, was capable of confusing even the most complicated pe- or, or competent people, he sauntered over to the guy's workstation. It's a strange error message. He's like, can't access slash foo slash bar for user 147. And... Uh, He's like, my first thought was, well, who's user 147? And it goes on. Turns out they had accidentally deleted slash etc and slash bin. So when you type ls, not found. There's no ls command anymore. Uh, and eventually he managed to use echo star to use the shell to expand the star to the list of files and get a basic list of what the files are uh, and stuff. And then he's like, so we have a tape backup, but we don't have the etc restore file to actually restore from. And we don't have the mkdnod utility to actually make the device entry to let us access the tape drive and so on. And so it goes through the story of, of getting this machine back up, which eventually apparently involved writing a bit of assembly code to reconcoct uh, the stuff to create the etc directory and put all the, bi- the files back so that they could actually run the restore. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, a great example of old-fashioned unix uh wizardry <laughs> yeah it's definitely worth a read uh if you're interested in unix at all and no flash required no no fancy bits it's just a nice yep. clean plain read all right so i i thought this would be a funny one so as we're wrapping up the roundup a couple more links here and this one what the hell what the actual hell it's like it's 1999 there is a flaw in these linux embedded machines where if you have them connected to the phone line to like receive fax you know, like, okay, picture it. You got an Ipsen all-in-one printer. It's got a fax, scanner, and print function. And you have it plugged into your phone line. Turns out it's 1999 all over again. And there could be a custom hack that allows these machines to get owned over dial-up. <laughs> yeah. I like this register article because it, it starts with party like his 1999 freakers. <laughs> Because uh, apparently this debates back to their devices from as far back as 99. So it makes you wonder, what version of embedded Linux is in this fax machine? Uh, they've been shipping this model since 1999. I don't even – I mean, who even knew about Linux back then? A very small percentage of people. Well, I did. But... Yeah, I know. I did too, but not a lot of people. Ibsen apparently was one of them, I guess. Yeah. Kind of hilarious. And then this last one. So this came up uh, – we were on our uh, Twitter talking about something or other, and I was getting annoyed because when I talked to – FedEx the other day, you know, they were reading out the the confirmation code or whatever, and it was like, E as an elephant. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so this, 
They have here the phonetic alphabet for assholes. So instead of, you know, something like the NATO phonetic alphabet that works in every language, they purposely picked words that don't sound like the letters they're spelled with. Like um, F as in phonetic, which is spelled P-H, right? (laughs) Uh, Or E as in I, as in your eyeball, but it sounds like the letter I, right? Or C as in Q, which just sounds like the letter Q, not like a pool Q. Yeah. Or even H as in honor. Yeah. Or, or Ooh, I U as in Uber, W as in right. <laughs> um, J as in jalapeno. <laughs> or yes, K as in night. Z, K, but no, Z as like in sound. Zounds. <laughs> okay, yeah. but say that last one for me, Alan. Come on. Yeah. Zounds. Zounds. Is that Zounds? Z Zounds? Z Zounds? W as in right, because yeah. it sounds like. You know, it starts with an R, right? Yeah. Uh, or no, that's, Q that is, is in quiche. Yeah. Which sounds like it starts with like a K. No, it's much more delicious. <laughs> or P is in pterodactyl, just because. <laughs> o is in Ouija. <laughs> I do like that. I also saw uh, this today. Actually, just as we record this, just I was going to say this week, but as today as we record this, I saw um, English for Cali- Californian English for the rest of us, and it was it was it was sort of a similar translation. Translation, it was good. That's in my retweets. If at Chris Elias, if you want to go find that, that was pretty funny. Well, Alan, um, there you go. That is that is the TechSnap program in a nutshell. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash show slash TechSnap if you want to find all our previous episodes. But just go to the main website. You'll find the latest TechSnap, and then subscribe via RSS. And then download all of it. And you can just binge like a maniac. And don't forget that BSD Now program if you want more mm-hmm. Jude in your face. And there's another Chris, spelt with a K, joining him for that particular program. Anything else we need to cover this nope, week? That's it for the show. All right. Find out when the all text done. <laughs> all done. Find out when the TextNet program is live over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And then watch it over at jblive.tv. Don't forget to send us your feedback, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and techsnap.tv. Reddit.com. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 